Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Yeah, we're on. The boys and girls are on. What is up, Gypsy Gang? Welcome back to another episode of the Gypsy Tales podcast. And I am stoked to bring you this one. Uh, this episode is with a gentleman by the name of Jeff Walker. And if you've never heard of Jeff, uh, he is a privateer that races a KTM out of the US in the 450 class. And he has a pretty incredible YouTube following and YouTube channel. He posts everything from really cool vlogs from the nationals that he races. He posts technical breakdowns of uh, bikes and equipment. He also posts uh, like technical uh, stuff that he does as well. And I have enjoyed following his channel for a really long time. I think it's one of the best on YouTube. And I think that he's already got this massive following but i really think that the sky is the limit for jeff he's such a unique and cool dude in motocross uh we've been wanting to do this one for a while we also we're actually talking about jeff coming over for manji up and working on some content together all of that got put on hold with covid but i guarantee that you'll be seeing a lot more of jeff uh on youtube i'm sure and as well as in australia really excited to uh to do some cool stuff with this absolute legend uh before we get into the podcast i just got to give you some messages from our awesome sponsors we are brought to you today by the legends at boost mobile boost mobile are not just the best prepaid provider in australia saving you money on outdated lock-in contracts but they are also able to save you money on the purchase of your new phone their refurbished phones come with a 12-month warranty and they all pass a 72-point inspection to guarantee quality they come with free shipping and if you live in a metro area you may qualify for next day shipping if the initial cost of a new phone is going to break the bank they also do zip pay head to boost.com.au to view the available stock everything from the latest samsung all the way to a new iphone helping us bring you this episode of the legends at mxstore.com.au if you're on the gold coast like i am it is probably going to be too wet to ride this weekend which is perfect if you have 
a mechanical project going on in the shed like I do. I'll be doing my typical Friday Arvo run to MX store to make my working weekend on the two-stroke just a little bit more productive. But if you aren't on the Gold Coast, you can order before 2 p.m. on weekdays and have your order shipped that same day. This means you still have time to get your parts and accessories order in before a big weekend of bike work. Once again, the website you need to punch into your browser is mxstore.com.au. We're also brought to you today by the Lords at Fist Handwear. And Sam is actually a lord with a Scottish title and all. Uh, we've just dropped our latest collab with Fist and you can head to gypsytales.com and get a pair of these puppies Uh yourself jb will uh, be the one that ships them out tomorrow and if you think i'm a bit of a flog but you love fist gloves anyway then you can just head to fisthandwear.com and use the code gypsy gang for 15 percent off winter might be over but dixon flannel still has you covered they do some epic board shorts walk shorts and more over at dixonquality.com.au and if you use the code gypsy gang you're also going to get 15 percent off your entire order if I was getting to ride this weekend, it would be on a set of Max's tires. If you head to our YouTube channel, you would see a really great segment where Mike Sleater talks about the Max's tires. He had no idea we were sponsored by Max's, and it's about as genuine a plug as you will ever hear. Uh, to check them out for yourself, head to your local dealer. Alongside Maxxis, we are brought to you by Motorex Oils, and while I do use them in my KDM 350, they also make amazing oils for all brands and are well worth checking out while you're sussing out some new hoops. We're also brought to you by the guys at Rival Inc., and if you are thinking about a set of new graphics for your 2021 or even a set of graphics for your young lad or lass, then you will have to head to rivalinkdesignco.com and make sure you make the Christmas cutoff. They don't have a wait time because they're lazy. They have these wait times because they are by far the best in the industry. True pioneers in the graphics game. Make sure you use the code Gang for 15% off at rivalinkdesignco.com. Last but certainly not least, we are brought to you by the guys and girls at Crick's Tweed. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I absolutely love my Triton and 2020 has been an awesome one riding, camping and four-wheel driving in the Triton. If you are in the market for a new or used car heading into 2021, make sure you head to crickstweed.com.au and book in a test drive. That is all from me. Thank you to everybody for continually supporting the podcast and listening to these awesome conversations. I absolutely love what I do and bringing you guys these conversations. And this one with Jeff Walker is no exception. Righto, Jeff Walker is on the people's champ, the pride of privateers, the privateer goat. What else can we call you, dude? You've uh, yeah, <laughs> you've got it all going on at the moment. It's sick. Yeah, bro. Dude, thank you for having me on, man. I've been wanting to uh, hop on this podcast for a long time, and I know it's my fault we didn't get this done sooner, but you know, in a way, it's kind of good because now like, maybe I'm a little more relevant, a little more follower base built up, so... You know, at least we're getting it done now. I'm excited, man. Dude, we actually, I forgot how long ago we've talked about doing this because 
originally I wanted you to come and do the the Manjimup race with me, which would have been in like June this year. Yeah, dude, that was a long time ago. Um, dude, I've been watching your videos for like ever since my channel was like in its infancy, you know? So when you first reached out to me, it was probably like at least over a year ago for sure. Um, I was like, all right, let's go. We're finally making it. <laughs> so yeah, dude, that would have been sick to do. Unfortunately, you know, the times these days, not, not quite allowing for that, but hey, we'll, we'll make it happen. Yeah. I feel like there's definitely an Australian trip in your future. One trillion percent. hundred percent, dude. I've always said, dude, like in another life, I think I was meant to be Australian. <laughs> like I vibe, I vibe with you guys real well. So, um, yeah, I love it, man. I want to make it over to Australia so bad. And honestly, it's crazy how like the percentage of the viewers of mine that are from Australia compared to like all the other countries. I mean, USA is like 50%, but Australia is like 20%, dude. So I definitely want to get over there for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, man. I think it's crazy. Like we'll just dive straight into your, um, I guess like the following, because I think you're probably you and danger boy, maybe like the two dudes killing it the hardest <laughs> on YouTube. Like it's insane, man. Like I can't, I think it was my buddy, Jay Reinenberg. He, um, he's actually the guy that owned the JDR team. Um, and that's who I like lived with and worked with in America. Um, I think it was him that put me onto your channel and uh, yeah, ever since then, man, I've just been like a, a pretty pretty massive fan of what you've got going on. And like we sort of, we spoke a little bit just before we um, actually started recording, but I honestly think it is incredible what you've been able to do with like no contacts in the industry, no, like all of the things that you've built have just come from like ground up, just posting on YouTube. And it's insane what you've been able to do. Yeah, dude, it's been honestly really strange how it all happened. And uh, like, I never really meant for the YouTube thing to like, I mean, I never set out with a camera to like try and be a YouTuber or whatever. It just kind of happened because, uh, yeah, like you said, I didn't really know anyone in the industry or anything. Um, pretty much my whole racing career, like if you want to call it career, I don't really. But uh, when I was doing amateurs and stuff, I was always like, it was ingrained in my head from my family and just me personally, my goals, like I knew I wanted to go to school, um, like college. And so I never like thought that motocross was going to be a viable career path. So I never like went out of my way to go and talk to people at the amateur nationals and stuff. Like, even though I went and raced Loretta's and Minio's and all that, like I was always like, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to be going to school next year anyway. So like, it doesn't really matter. So I never went out of my way to like make those connections and I wish I would have, but, um, like it all worked out. So yeah, it's kind of crazy, but, um, yeah, dude, I, I'm excited to now start kind of meeting some people in the industry and seeing where we could possibly take it from there, you know? So you just had it in your head that there was no point trying to make it because you decided that you weren't going to make it. Is that pretty much like how it went down? I mean, like, if you're a moto fan, you kind of know that if you're not at a young age, like if you're not on like a factory 85, there's not like... I'm not saying you can't do it. Obviously you can. There's people like Justin Cooper who go out and, or like Shane McElrath who make a name. But uh, for me, like I was, I was a C like legit bad C rider when I was on little bikes all, 
all the like super minis and 125s and stuff. So I was so late to the game. Like in when I was 14, I finally made it to Loretta's for the first time in 250C. Like no that way. was only six, yeah, that was only six years ago. So like, yeah, it's it, well, not six years ago, a couple more than that. But, but uh, yeah, like the, where we've been since then is like, I don't know. I, I never thought that I would be where I am today, especially like when you're 14, you should be winning the super mini class and like have a factory team green ride or whatever. So at that point, I never thought I would even race professionally. Like when I made it to Loretta's for the first time, I was like mind blown. Like my mom was crying, dude, because like she never thought that I would ever make it. I mean, I used to get lapped in the 85C class like every weekend at my local tracks. So yeah, I never thought that it would be anything. And then like once I made it to Loretta's in the C class, I actually ended up getting like fifth or sixth or something. And I was like, oh, all right. I mean, let's see where we can go with it. Made it in the B class a couple times and then just went straight to pro from the B class because that was like my last year before going to college. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely not the normal, like typical career path, but it kind of worked out in the end, I guess. Yeah, I mean, dude, like fuck, that's a bizarre story. To think of, you know, like when you look at now, like you're one of the more subscribed dudes on YouTube and, you know, like you've done, you've done all right at some nationals this year. And I mean, when you put it in the context of like, you used to get lapped in the 85 C class to be a guy that can go out and like do nationals. And, and I, dude, I personally think you've got a dope riding style. Like I look at your riding style as something that's like super achievable, if that makes sense. It's like a really good, like anybody could aspire to have like your, um, your style. It's not this like crazy, you know, out of the, out of control, like untouchable sort of deal. Um, but yeah, it's like, man, to know that you've had, you've come from that, I guess, like far back essentially to get to where you are now is insane. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. Cause I'm very self-conscious about my riding style. I feel like tall riders have a harder time looking like cool on a bike. So thank Amen, you for brother. That. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, no dude, like you're exactly right. I, I don't know. I feel like people can relate to that a little bit more because there's probably, I mean, there's way more kids in the 85 C class right now than there are winning 85 like championships at Loretta's obviously. Mm. And I feel like it's ingrained in people's heads that like, they can't make it or they won't be pro or whatever, you know? And like, I feel like I'm, I mean, I'm kind of showing kids that like, if you put your mind to it, it doesn't matter where you start or like, you know, I'm showing the parents maybe that you don't need to be ripping on your kid if he's not winning the 85 class at his local races and stuff. Cause honestly, I feel like it's better to start out a little bit slower because now I'm having like the most fun I've ever had on a dirt bike. Um, because I'm finally now like finding my stride when it actually matters and I feel like a lot of the kids that used to absolutely smoke me at the local tracks on an 85, like I haven't seen them at the track in years because they're just kind of burnt out or whatever. So, mm. I mean, it would have been nice to be on a factory bike when I was a kid, but like, it, I guess if I had to do it that way or this way, I would, I would rather do it this way for sure. Plus like, you know, it allowed me that time to get the education and focus on the stuff that I needed to beforehand. And then now I can like just go full gas and the pros and stuff and just see where it takes me. So how did you get good? <laughs> Dude, honestly, um, well, I mean, for one, like it was, it was everything I ever wanted as a kid. Like uh, my parents are definitely realistic. Like my dad's an ER doctor, so he's very like 
analytical and logical about things. So like we, we never got my hopes up that I was going to make it pro or whatever, but like, I always felt like inside that I could, if I put my mind to it hard enough. So, um, like when I got into high school, uh, I joined this like strength training class and actually like met one of my like biggest influences, which was my high school gym teacher. And, uh, I spent like the four years in high school, like building strength and everything and kind of shedding off. Like I was, I was kind of a fat little kid too. So I <laughs> like lost all that weight, got strong and like, dude, it was all I ever thought about. Like I never went out and like partied. Like I had friends, but I never really like hung out with friends on, like on the weekends or anything. Like I pretty much went to school or went to the dirt bike track. And like, once I started to kind of get that stronger and like you know, went through my growth spurt and everything. Like it was almost like overnight one winter we went down. Like I, I went into the winter a goon on a one twenty five. Like I was a straight up sea rider. And then over winter break, a couple months later, we went down to like, um, monster mountain or something. And I was just like, bro, I actually just kind of railed that corner. Like what, <laughs> what's going on right now? And then I was like, yo, that was actually so easy. Like, why don't I just do that in every corner? And, uh, it kind of went from there. And then that was the year that I qualified for Loretta's in the C class. And so then, you know, the confidence started building and it just kind of went from there. But yeah, it was like, I put everything into it, man. I, I like, I, I know it's cliche to say like, you can do anything if you put your like heart and soul into it, but dude, I'm serious. If there are any kids out there watching right now, like, honestly, you can do it. I'm telling you. <laughs> that's insane, man. And that's such like a sick message because, man, like, I'm so thankful how my life turned out. But I was that same kid, you know what I mean? Like, I grew up, all I wanted to do was be a professional dirt bike rider. Like, I had a bit of a different upbringing in the sense of, like, not no one in my family has ever gone to college like and that's still well actually i like my sister my sister was the first person in not just like my immediate family but like all of my extended family that went to college and so that was like not a thing my dad used to race as a privateer in australia and that's like kind of all me and my brother wanted to do was like do motocross and man like we had the we had the um the parents pushing us to like want to go to college and I did well at school and stuff and it was all we wanted but man like I just wasn't like I was a B rider in Australia and I looked at everybody else and I was like it's unattainable like I can't do this so then I just fully pivoted and I was like all right how do I stay in the industry and just essentially get free bikes and free shit like the pros do and get to ride but without actually <laughs> being fast you know and uh, so then that's when I got into filming and I'm so glad that it worked out the way that it did now because, you know, like me and Sam sort of joke, like we're semi-pro, like we get to do all the fun stuff that, that pros do, but we don't have to be pro. But I just did, I gave up on that dream because I was like, I'm not good enough to do this. But now that I'm writing, I'm loving writing more than ever. I'm 32 and I've got like Ben Townley, like I send him videos and BT will like talk about my writing and he's like coaching me and shit like that. And like, I'm actually starting to ride good and it's not, I'm under no illusions oh, yeah. that I'm like pro speed, but I'm like, man, maybe <laughs> I could have like, if I, cause I didn't put in that much effort. I didn't train. Like I didn't do what you did. So like, I didn't get those results. So I think like for you to say that 
is very powerful because like I was one of the kids that definitely just gave up on the dream. I just assumed that if I didn't have a factory bike, if I wasn't winning junior nationals, if I wasn't winning the A class locally, that it was over and no amount of hard work could fix that. And that's genuinely what I believed. I was like, no amount of hard work could actually make me do good. But now that I look back and there's people like yourself in the world, it's like, shit, like maybe, you know what I mean? Like maybe you can. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I had the same mindset as you. Like I never thought I was actually going to be pro or whatever, but I still like just wanted to be the best racer that I could be because like, well, for one, my older brother and I love my older brother. So don't, don't get it twisted right now. But like he was always fast when he was a kid. And he's four years older than me. So he was friends with all the fast kids in his age group. And like, I was the biggest spode. They were like, they would just pick on me. They were like, what, what the hell happened to you, bro? Like your brother, Tim's killing it. You're a goon. So like, I mean, I never like thought I was going to go pro, like I said, but I always wanted to just be the best that I could be because for one, I just wanted to shut those kids up and be like, bro, look, I can, I can rip. All right. But, uh, um, I never want to like half-ass anything. And like, even though I didn't think I could be a professional or whatever, I still wanted to be the best that I could be, even if it meant, you know, just like getting a C-class win someday, like that would have mm. been enough for me. But, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying everyone, I mean, there is definitely, you know, a, a talent aspect to it as well. Like not anyone could just go out and put in that work and do it. Um, you obviously can, I've seen you rip, like if you put in the work, you could have done it for probably not to like, you know, put salt in the wound or anything, but, <laughs> nah, my but um, I'm good. <laughs> dude, yeah, no, you went the right path, dude. Like you get better, better stuff than most, uh, pros do. But <laughs> anyways, like, <laughs> like straight up, like, I don't know, man, I don't want to half-ass anything and I don't want to ever want to look back and be like, what if, um, so I just put all that work into it just hoping that you know someday it would i could look back and at least say that i gave it my all and um it turned into something way more than i ever thought it would but if everyone did that i think there would be a lot more people doing dope stuff out there for sure dude i 100 percent agree man and so not many kids would grow up racing motocross with a dad that's a doctor and i feel like there's probably <laughs> But there's probably some like cool lessons in that, like, you know, for you to like, you know, not really party and not really worry about hanging out with your friends and that sort of thing. Like that mindset obviously had to come from uh, your, you know, I don't know, like it obviously come from somewhere and I'm assuming that that sort of stuff comes from your parents. So like what, because you know what, like everyone's seen the typical mini dad that, you know, it works construction. Like there is a definitely a stereotypical and it's not a bad stereotype. It's not a negative thing, but there's a certain family situation that gravitates towards pushing their kids into motocross and not many of those are doctors. So like, what were some of the unique aspects of growing up trying to be like a racer, but with like a doctor for a dad? I'm not sure what your, your mum does, but I'm sure that, you know, there was like a big family influence, you know? Yeah. So my mom was also a nurse. That's actually how they met. But, um, so like, I think a big part of it was that my dad, like he never like flaunted the fact that he was a doctor or anything. You know, he just drove mm. a regular truck. We just had a regular house. Like we did everything normal. And like it, everyone says it, everyone that meets my dad, like all my moto friends that didn't know he was a doctor. Once they found out they were like, 
what? Like, what are you talking about? This guy is not a doctor. Like, what are you talking about? Cause he's just, he wears skater shoes. Like he, he's just the coolest, most chill dad ever. And I love the fact that he was like so humble about it, but just behind the scenes, just grinding away and putting in the work. Cause like he came from a family that wasn't like, you know, he didn't come from a doctor of family or a family of doctors or anything like that. He was um, the first person in his family to do something like that. And so like, even though he didn't like specifically say these things to me, like I could just pick up on them over the years that like he just low key worked his ass off, put in the work, became a doctor. And now he's just like so humble about it and so chill, like not flaunting it out there or anything. And those definitely rubbed off on me as well. I think maybe kind of uh, the same way. Like if you just met me, you probably wouldn't assume that I was a professional motocross racer or whatever, because I'm not just throwing it out there and, and throwing it in everyone's faces, but just low key behind the work, putting, putting in the work and everything. And even in my videos, like if I do really well at a pro national, I'm never like super like cocky about it or whatever. I just always try and keep everything really humble. Um, just cause my dad's been such a great role model. You know, everyone I talk to just say he's like the man, you know, and I agree. I love my dad to death and uh dude he's definitely been a great role model for me so yeah i would say a lot of it comes from him but so subtly like that i don't even really realize that he's the one who rubbed off on me mm. but uh yeah like you said there's a lot of parents that like really push their kids to do um like well in motocross and man he was never like that at all when i was a little kid like riding in the 85c class he would always just he would never like try and push me to go faster or anything um i was kind of a wuss too so like sometimes i wouldn't want to race my second moto and he would like never say anything about it he would just be like all right well we'll just come back out next weekend like don't worry about it and uh i think that's kind of the other thing about why i wanted to work so hard was because like he just wanted me to do my best and have fun and that's exactly what i wanted to do too and uh yeah i think it like he's been a great role model for me that's so cool, man. And like, that's honestly, man, like one of the biggest changes I think that I've personally made for 2020 is I think that like, I was the kind of person where like, I've always read like a shitload of books. Like I've always educated myself as much as I can. Cause like, I just didn't really do the school thing. And, uh, and then I'd sort of, I'd see stuff in people around me and then I always would like try and I guess like coach people and like, this is what you should do. And and I thought I was like doing the right thing. And I think that sometimes that could like it maybe come across the wrong way. And it was like a, I had a dude on the podcast ages ago where he said like, uh, knowledge is for the ego. Wisdom is for the soul. And, uh, and then that like really resonated with me. I was like, damn, like maybe this sort of knowledge deal is like being used in like the wrong way. And maybe the way to like, really influence people is just to walk the walk like i don't want to coach anyone that's close to me anymore like if there's something where it's like they obviously need a piece of advice but i think that you end up helping people so much more by just kind of doing what it sounds like your dad did like not really talking about it not really trying to tell like he could have said like you know if you do your second moto and like, and like you know coach you but there's a level of like pushback that you can have if you're not ready for something like that and it just seems like the move is to just fully lead by example. Oh, for sure, dude. There's no better way to do it than just to lead by example. I mean, like, I don't know, man. If Even if he would have yelled at me and everything, I still wouldn't have wanted to do it. And I would have just quit because 
like when I was that young and everything, I didn't like super love racing motocross, like getting my dirt bike, but I didn't love like racing. So when we would go to the races, that was kind of like one of the reasons why I would just like do the first moto get dead last. And I was like, what am I even doing, man? I just want to go ride around in the yard, ride my XR 70 and, and rail some like turns in my yard and stuff. And he knew that like, that was what I had the most fun doing and he was fine with it. Um, and like, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. Like you, no matter how much you yell at a kid or whatever, they're going to, they're going to want to do. And if you try and force them to do something they don't want to do and get burnt out and, uh, like they're, they're not going to have fun doing it. So that was huge for me. And I, I definitely love the fact that he was like so cool about it and everything. And even my brother who was fast time, he, he had the same, like, you know, he, he wasn't any harder on my faster and like had a chance to go pro or anything. He treated us the exact same way. And, uh, Dude, it, it also kind of allowed me to build my own love for it because I feel like a lot of people who are in the sport just say, well, yeah, I did it and uh, that's why I'm racing and stuff. But for me, it was like, I mean, my dad did race back in the day, but like he never talked about that or at all or anything. Um, and he never pushed me to do it. So any love that I have for the sport right now is completely like on me. You know, it's a love that I built for, for it because anyone else wanted me to do it. And I think that's like way more powerful than someone forcing you to love it. Not that, I mean, even if someone forced you to love it, it's motocross, it's dirt bikes, which is probably going to love it anyways. But I feel like it's a lot stronger because no one's telling me to do it. Like I just found that love on my own. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, that makes sense, man. Like, and I feel like even for me these days, I love motocross for s- such different reasons than I ever did if that makes sense and now it just seems so and it's through the podcast to be honest like seeing how uh positive it can be for other people and seeing how much i mean i'm sure you'd find this with your youtube channel you know like you can see how much what you do inspires people and makes that like their froth levels build or they're watching it before they go ride or it inspires a trip or an idea or a race and it's like i think that yeah for me that that is now more the love that I have. And I think as well, like my brother's really good. Like my brother was, um, had a pro number and stuff in Australia. And then we would race a lot as a family. And like nowadays we go to races still, I'm 32, my brother's 30 and my parents are in their fifties and we'll still load up the van and go racing. Like we were eight and 10. And, you know, to me, like I've grown to love that regardless like i don't give a fuck if my bike blows up on the start line at the first race like i literally <laughs> don't care anymore oh for sure dude yeah yeah that's that's over for me man i just loved hanging out with my dad and my brother and all of our friends and everything and that's like truthfully the reason i started the youtube channel and i, I tell i say this story like every, anytime anyone asks me like how i started it but you know my dad literally from the first time i rode a few 50 he was there the first time I raced. He was there the first time at Loretta's. He was there at Loretta. He was there for my first personal, all of it. And uh, he was like so invested and loved it so much. And when I finally went to college, um, I moved like a thousand miles south to Florida for college just because I couldn't I couldn't snow anymore. I had to get out of there. But uh, yeah, I went to Florida and like I didn't ride my whole first year of college because I kind of thought I was done at that point. And I knew that he missed like maybe more than I did even, but yeah. um, 
finally like the second year i brought a bike down and anytime i would go to the trap whether it was just for a practice day or a race or whatever he would just be blown up my own like yo how's the track who's there is there anyone fast like did you win like how's the bike going how are you doing and i'm just like you know what dad i'll just get a gopro and i'll start uploading a couple videos because i feel i felt like i kind of owed him that to like bring him along to the track with me or whatever so i just start uploads raw gopro so i could just send it to him after the day and be like this is how my day went yeah. and uh i i don't know how like people found it or whatever but that was always the inspiration behind it so yeah if anything i owe my youtube channel to my dad's love for the sport so it's kind of crazy to think about that in some way but yeah kind of sick i just love the family aspect of it dude that's a sick story that's a it's so cool too like um oh are you recording your audio on your end as well uh oh i might not be is it easy for you to set that up do you know how to do that yeah yeah i can i can do that real quick sorry dude it's just like there's just been a couple like cut out oh, no moments, and i'm just like oh, i'd be sick oh yeah naked. yeah no. <laughs> i'll set up stream labs here dope all right we're... you're wrong yeah there we go yep we're good so um yeah man like one of the coolest things too with any i guess success story because we can definitely call your youtube channel like a massive success story but so many of the things that do really well in this world are things that start with such a humble beginnings and with just pure intentions there's no there's no intention when you started that channel to be what it ended up becoming and i think that that's kind of one of the secrets uh, to success is doing something that you would do regardless. Yeah. Um, and I like, I try and refrain from saying like that all time because like there are people who set out to do the YouTube thing and I don't want to like make them think they can't do it just because that that's what they're striving for. Cause they totally mm -hmm. can. Yeah. But, but yeah, it did start out super humble for, for me. Never ever thought like anyone would even view the videos. And to this day, I, I don't know exactly why it did blow up the way it, it did because people ask me all the time and I'm like, honestly, man, I I don't know. I wish I could. I wish I had some formula. Um, I, I do have like a couple theories, like the big one being the chin mount, like GoPro angle kind of like revolutionized the point of view thing for motocross. Um, and then the fact that I was in Florida when it was like the dead of winter. So people weren't riding themselves and they wanted to see footage and stuff. So like I was kind of filling that void for them while they were stuck in the snow. Mm. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of funny how it because like I know a lot of people do set out to like do the YouTube thing and try and make it happen. And I just totally did not mean for that to happen at all. And uh, yeah, it did kind of turn into something that I would consider successful. I mean, it's the reason I'm not in school right now and I'm getting to do what I love every day. So I would call that a success for sure. Yeah, man, it's, it's definitely, you are right. Like you, you can't sit and say that you have to start humbly and it has to be this genuine thing. You, you can't seek it because you obviously can. But the thing that people need to realize going into this, I was just talking to Wes Williams um, yesterday. He's one of my best friends. We've worked together for years and years and years. And we were talking about, because recently uh, my YouTube channel started to do better. 
And it's like the podcast has been going for three years. It's been my full-time job for basically the whole time, but purely because I just literally lived off savings and nothing to essentially just avoid having a job to try and make it work. But (laughs) it's like there's so much time that goes into it where there's no results. Like, especially on the YouTube front, the iTunes has always done really well, but on the YouTube front, like nothing, man, for so long. And, you know, you just try and you try and you try and there's all these hurdles to doing stuff. And it's like, yeah, like it'd do okay. A thousand views here, a few thousand views there. You get the lucky one that blows up and that, you know, like I've got a Pastrana clip that's got nearly 700,000 views but then you <laughs> then you can't replicate it and then you get bummed and then you know you got one month where you've made a bunch of money off youtube and then the next month you make 200 bucks so it's like the but the underlying thing under all that is like i kind of don't care i'm gonna do it anyway but there's no you know what i mean like because i'm not tied to that uh you know the idea of being successful on youtube that's the thing that I think lets me be successful, if that makes sense. For sure. There's definitely a grinding aspect to it, <laughs> which you have mastered at this point. Um, but a lot of people think it's just going to happen just like at the drop of a hat. And like I've, I've tried to uh, get friends who are, you know, pro- privateer motocross racers to like go out and do this because uh, because like it's obviously been so successful for me and it's the reason that I'm still racing right now. And I know that they're struggling, you know, to make it to the races every weekend and try and tell me and on like pick up, just put the GoPro on. You don't have to talk or anything. Just put the GoPro on, start uploading some videos and get people interested and they'll do it and they'll upload like one or two and they don't immediately pop off to like 10,000 views or whatever. And then they get discouraged and just give up. And I'm like, I mean, I got really lucky that I found my niche like super fast. So I didn't have to go through that grinding period, but like it's possible and it will literally change your life once it finally does blow up. So like I always tell people do it because there's literally no downside. Like on one hand, you know, best case scenario, it could blow up and turn into getting to do what you love for a living and potentially make a lot of money doing it and just live a dope life. And worst case scenario, you got to document a part of your life that you can go on and show your grandkids and their grandkids and their grandkids. You know, there's like no downside to it. Even if each video gets five views, you know, when you're 80 years old, go back and look on it and be like, oh, yeah, man, I qualified for Redbud in 2014 and got 27th place. Like that was so sick. You can go back and literally relive that when you were 20 years old. I mean, I don't know. I get why like more people don't do it because it is a lot of work, but there's no downside to it, man. I think in my opinion, every single privateer should be doing an amateur racer who wants to be a pro someday, or even if they don't want to be a pro someday, like just pick up a camera, man. It's so easy to do and you will not regret it. I promise you won't. Do you think that, uh, the, cause you hear so many people like, oh, the algorithm, it's so hard to blow up now on YouTube. Like, And that's sort of like a point of, uh, I guess, resistance that people can't seem to get over. But do you think that the moto thing is like saturated on YouTube? Because in my eyes, it doesn't seem like there's that many people doing it in motocross. But the sport itself, like the eyeballs that are attracted to motocross 
and Supercross, it's there's a lot of people out there. So do you think there's still room for like more Jeff Walkers? Oh, dude, there's more than just a little bit of room. Like I'm pretty much the only person who really does like the full pro motocross thing. I mean, Alex Martin has his troll train thing, which is really sick and he's doing a really good job. And I think that's probably like one of the best things he could be doing right now because people absolutely watching that. And like AJ Catanzaro is putting out some good content right now too. Um, but dude, like if I, if I don't upload a video for like a week, people will just come and hammer me to keep up uploading them because like, there's no other person doing it. And like, that's another reason I'm trying to get my friends to do it so that if I have a period where I can't upload, I can just shove all my viewers off to them and be like, back off, like go watch this instead. So like, I think, Dude, there's so much room in the industry for it, um, especially like the pro motocross thing, because everyone in pro motocross is just so secretive about whatever they're doing, you know, especially like the top guys with the pro teams who are like doing their secret testing and all this and all that. And that's totally understandable. Like I could understand why a person like, like, you know, Tomac that I vlog um, all of his training and stuff. But, you know, for the people like me or the people who are just a step under you know, that level, like, man, it's only going to benefit you. And there's so much room in the industry right now to do it. Um, that like, man, there's no reason not to, honestly, I wish everyone would do it because it's it's only going to grow our sport too. And Mm. like you said, there's so many eyes on our sport. Like if you compare the top guys in our sport, like just their socials on Instagram and stuff, for some reason, like all of the top motocross guys have a way bigger following than like just for instance, like, you know, professional cyclists or something like that, you know, for, for whatever reason, motocross is probably just cause it's a badass sport, but, um, like we have a really high following or maybe it's like a young following and they're all on social media or whatever, but you know, people are hungry for more content and there just needs to be more people putting it out there. Man, I totally agree. And one of the craziest things for me doing the podcast is the, just the type of people that follow my instagram like i'll whenever i like look at followers come through i'm like what the fuck he drives a formula one car or you know like <laughs> it's like the the whole top 10 of the uci downhill world championship follow the podcast and like message listen to literally every episode and it it's such a trip but those dudes froth moto and like will Hahn and daniel ricardo are like fucking best mates you know, there's so many eyes. It's like motocross is the cool kid at the at the dance. And it's like, yeah, the other kids might like have a better future and make a bit more money or come from a better family. But it's like, for whatever reason, like the moto kids are like that. It's They're always the prom king, you know? All right, cool. Uh, I lost you when you were talking about how motocross is the cool kid thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, yeah, whatever, for whatever reason, it's like the moto kids are just like, they're the cool kids at the party, you know? Yeah, no, it's honestly insane. That's the most insane part about it is like the people who will reach out to me on Instagram and stuff. I mean, I'm like, obviously everyone who rides dirt bikes is super into punk rock and everything. And for whatever reason, it's the other the other way is true too. everyone who's into punk rock loves moto. And so like just the other day, I got a DM from Justin Hills, who's the bass guitarist for sleeping with sirens. Yeah. And they're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Millions and millions of followers and listeners like, and I have been listening to their music forever. And no way. Uh, suppo- 
yeah so he just reached out to me and he's like yo dude i live in michigan like are you around do you want to go ride so i got to ride with like one of just an absolute legend in punk rock like it's insane how many people are into it yeah dude that's crazy you know uh funny story i actually toured europe with those dudes when uh really yeah like to film we were filming uh with the band called issues that was issues and bring me the horizon and uh so we were filming and those three guys were on a uh oh and pierce the veil um they were on like a a euro tour so we hung out with those dudes the whole time but i didn't know that he was into motocross and he probably didn't know i was either dude he's got a sick brand new like uh works edition honda 450 just chilling like yeah it's sick dude and and the, the craziest part about it was that when he was like talking to me or whatever and i was like bro i mean like do you realize like who you are and who like I am? Like he was, he was almost more stoked about like the fact that I answered his DM and I was like, bro, are you kidding me? Like you're one of my like idols. <laughs> like I'm talking to an insane rock star right now. And he's stoked that like I answered his DM and that was just so like humbling for sure. But super rad dudes. Like I hope someday we can, you know, get the whole crew out and yeah, get all those guys and go for a shred day. That would be sick. Yeah, man, that's so cool. And, and yeah, it, it is, it definitely was, I mean, I've been making motocross content since I was 19, essentially. And I, even me, I had no idea, like I was just making content for the every, like for the moto fan that was like in the industry racing. Like I sort of was making content for me in a way. And I just didn't realize how many like in the UFC world, they call them like casuals. And it's like, we haven't been catering anything towards the casuals. And that's definitely something that I try and do with the podcast. And I think that that's why the YouTube's done a little bit better in recent weeks is because I've just really tried to like dial everything back. Like, let's just not make this so moto and let's just make this like for the casuals almost, if that makes sense, you know, and like just try and make it real accessible. Cause I think that that was probably one thing that I noticed is that all the stuff that I was doing was just very targeted at like the people that were super deep racing every weekend, knew the 450 points, knew the 250 points, but there's so many dudes out there that just love dirt bikes. Yeah, dude, that's like, that's a, a struggle that I always have too, because obviously I love doing the professional racing and everything, but honestly, just like moving more into general motocross stuff is like where I think the channel's really going to take off. Like someday when I'm done racing professionally, like, and I can focus on just doing a bunch of sick bike builds and like trail riding mm-hmm. and free riding and all that stuff. I think that's when like the huge boom will really happen. Um, I mean, people obviously love following the fact that I race pro, but like the pro national race vlogs are not the most viewed videos on my channel at all, for sure. Like the most viewed video on my channel was the one time I went out into the California mountains with a couple buddies and just like rode to the top of a mountain, did some hill climbs, did some little free ride jumps. It's like two and a half million views off of that. And I'm just like, bro, it's going to be insane someday when I finally just like retire from professional racing and just start having more fun and doing like way more relatable stuff um but obviously i'm not quite at that point right now i still love the uh professional racing aspect of it but yeah my top like four or five videos are just me goofing around on everyday bikes that anyone could go out and buy and just rip around with their friends so there's a huge market for it man there just needs to be someone who steps in and like 
relates professional motocross more to the casuals, like you said. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so... Because I'm like a massive uh, mixed martial arts fan. Like, I do um, jiu-jitsu pretty seriously. And that was the one thing that I'd, I kind of picked up on just from, like, watching fights at bars and shit. And it was like, you know, I... Essentially, I was like, okay, I do jiu-jitsu. I do, like, all the nationals and state titles. And it's like, so I'm in that lane. And then you get all these dudes... The bar is filled with guys that are like do a rear naked choke. You got to close the triangle. And it's like, you know what I mean? And it's like, I could see, I was like, oh, that's just like a regular dude that doesn't train. Like you could tell he doesn't train because of the way he's talking about it. And it's not like he's wrong, but he he's not right either. And I'm like, I don't know that that exists in motocross. Like those guys exist in motocross, but there's like content out there for those casuals to watch. And it's like, you don't have to to be like a an active participant fan of mixed martial arts. You don't have to do martial arts. There's still like a bunch of content. You can get into the rivalries. You can go and watch the fights, and you can feel like you're a part of that culture and that industry because there's, I guess, a lane that's catered. You're, like you're catered to in that sport, and yeah, motocross. Like you're not. And I think that that was like a huge switch for me where I was like, damn, we could reach all these people that are alienated by the depth that the content is and the, the, like the specificity of everything and everything that's done is just so tailored towards like the people that really, really know and actively race and actively participate. And I think that that's probably a huge reason why Danger Boys channel is so big. Yeah, dude, I, I think about that all the time. And like it, it especially struck me when I was like very first starting to date my uh, girlfriend, Bridget, and I took her to a Supercross race and I was like trying to explain to her yeah. the whole format and everything. And like for me, it's just second nature because that's like all I've, you know, known. Yeah. But like trying to explain to her how, how there's free practice, time practice, another time practice, qualifying, heat races, like semis. This was at the time when there was like, not just one heat race and the LCQ in the main, it was like heat race, semi LCQ main event. And like, yeah. by the end of it, she was just like, I literally don't even know what race is out there or what the difference between a 250 and a 450 is. And I'm like, yeah, actually it's probably super confusing. But, um, like to this day, I, I don't think my mom even knows like what exactly <laughs> I do at a pro national. So I think it's sick that I can like give people a little bit of an insight to what it is. But at the end of the day, man, there needs to be more of a connect between professional racers and just, you know, the casual fans, because that's why people love podcasts so much. Like when Ricky Carmichael goes on a podcast or whatever, they get to like see Ricky Carmichael, actually, not just ricky carmichael on the podium or you know whatever it is i think they just want to have some relatability and youtube is the way to do that in my eyes yeah man i totally agree there's such like a freedom there too you know like it's sort of i'd like to think that or hope that i do a super professional job in the way that i produce the show but like it is just an unprofessional medium like i could just go live on youtube and just off my phone you know what i mean it doesn't it's <laughs> It's not this thing that I have to submit to NBC and then go through all these people and then, oh, this doesn't fit this. Blah, blah, blah. Like it's a, it, it is still a very like raw and unprofessional place where you can like literally anything goes as long as you stay with yeah, the I mean, guidelines. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not trying to get canceled out here. Cancel culture is real, but <laughs> no, the the less professional it is, the more people love it, dude. My first couple videos, I tried to like keep a super monotone voice, like keep everything very, very like professional and not be too goofy or anything. And then finally, I found out that like the more goofy and like weird and actually myself that I was like people love that dude. That was their favorite. They were like, if I made some stupid joke or just like, I don't know, it was just being a goofball. Like people love that. Like way more than if I was like very analytically breaking down a section of the track. If I was just like, yo, I got mad squirrely out there over that yeah. like dragons back, dude. Like they love that way more. So yeah, I mean, I think it's sick that we can do that on YouTube and just literally do whatever we want and not have someone with a microphone in front of us, like interviewing us or whatever, you know, this is way more of a chill environment and I can just talk freely about whatever I want to. Uh, when did you first notice the channel blowing up? Like how long did it sort of take? And then what was your like initial, uh, headspace around wanting to take it a little bit more seriously? Like what's sort of the timeline that you're operating on? Um, I mean, there wasn't really a timeline. I was a junior in college at the time when I started the YouTube channel. So I knew I had like two years, my junior and senior year to like try and kind of make it happen before I went on to medical school. So I guess my time frame was like a two year window where I was like, all right, if it's not happening by then, like I'm not going to probably be able to ride and race while I'm in medical school because that's just way too much time. So there's kind of like a two year window, but things happened way, way, way faster than I thought they were going to. Like, I think I uploaded my first video like sometime right before Thanksgiving in 2018. And then like by the new year, I think we had like 5000 subscribers or something like that. And that was like kind of the moment when I was like, oh, this is kind of growing like really fast. Like I should get a 125 and do a 125 build and then just start making epic like 125 thrashing content. So I did that and that was like my first video that hit 100K views was uh, me and my buddy on 125s just like stuffing each other in corners and just going wide open, throwing huge scrubs and stuff. And at that point, like there was just a huge boom in the subscribers and I was like, okay, this outdoor pro season is about to be lit, bro. So like kind of did the outdoor season and everything and then it was just like, I don't know if there was a, a specific moment, but like I think that first time that I did the 125 videos and stuff was like a turning point for sure. Yeah, man. It's, yeah, fuck. It's such a sick, it's just such a sick story to just do something and have it work in that kind of way to where then you can really pivot, you know? Cause like, I'm sure that, I mean, your dad sounds really cool to where I doubt there'd be pressure on uh, you from him to go to medical school, but it's like, dude, the contrast of like, all right, I could be a doctor or a YouTuber. Like one of those things comes with like social prestige and guaranteed of money. And the other comes with like, you're a fucking YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, I mean, on the surface, he's super realistic and like logical and everything. But I definitely there's parts of him inside that is a dreamer and like, you know, he wants to believe that anything is possible. I mean, he be, he became a doctor. You got to have a little bit of, you know, gnarliness in you and like self-belief to make that happen. So like, I think once um, he, honestly, I think it was probably the first national that we showed up to in 2019, like the first year after I started the YouTube channel. And there was like 
probably 50 people that stopped by the van that day and they mm. were like getting autographs and stuff. I think that was probably like when he was like, oh, wow, like this, like it's one thing to see a view count or like comments on a video, but to mm. actually see like 50 people come by and get an autograph when the year before, like I didn't, I, I don't think I had ever signed an autograph the year before or like the, my entire career up until that point. So I think at that point he was like, all right, this is actually pretty sick. Like, if you want to do it, like go for it. <laughs> so Dude, he's that, always been really supportive. That's super cool. And so what, like your first two years in college down in Florida, what were you studying? Like, were you doing pre-med stuff or how does it sort of, how does it work? Like what, what was your plan before the YouTube thing did well? Like, how did you see life going? Yeah, it was always pre-med. Um, my older brother, like he did engineering, mechanical engineering, and he works at NASA now. And then my older what? sister is, yeah, it, it's gnarly, man. And uh, my older sister, she's in medical school right now, and I'm the third one in line. So like they were all doing big things. My dad was a doctor. My mom is a nurse. And I was like, all right, it's just medical school. Like they never pushed me to do it. Like you said, um, I think they would have been happy no matter what I did. But I was like, all right, we, we got to do it. Keep up with the family trend. So I actually, I mean, I graduated pre-med um, last fall. So yeah, I spent the last like five years studying that. Technically, it's called like pre-professional biology with a minor in chemistry. So I mean, I was doing everything like biology one and two, um, biochemistry, like advanced organic chemistry, all that shit, physics. Um, so yeah, I did all that, all that stuff in school. So how did, like, you obviously enjoy the process of, like, learning and studying. Has that always been something that you've been super into as well? To be honest, man, like, I kind of hate school. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, I don't exactly know why, but I, I couldn't wait to get out of college. Um, I do like knowing the things, but I feel like there's a lot of, like, tedious, unnecessary things that we have to learn. Like, like... I don't know. I know it's to weed out the people who like, you know, mm. aren't going to be in it for the long haul or whatever, but it felt so pointless to me that I was learning some of the stuff that I was learning when like what I wanted to be learning was how to put a rod in someone's femur, you know? And instead I was learning like the composition of like celery. <laughs> and I was like, dude, what, what? Like this doesn't <laughs> make any sense. But, but, uh, no, I, I do like having all that knowledge and stuff. And I like, I like learning the things that I want to learn, but I don't like having to learn things that like are useless to me. But um, no, I mean, I enjoyed the college experience. Like I didn't get the full college experience, like I said, because I was so focused on motocross and doing the YouTube and stuff. But um, I mean, I enjoyed it. I had fun. What what did, sort of stuff did you learn, especially in physics that you can actually you applied to motocross and sort of made you better in that sense? Um, I mean, th there's not a lot that applies to motocross. I'm going to be straight up, really. I mean, I, you could definitely like use it to plan out like big jumps that like Axel Hodges and stuff are doing just based on your like trajectory and your speed and, and, you know, like how far you're going to jump based on what angle you take off at and your velocity and everything. Um, probably the biggest thing though, is you learn a lot about suspension because there's a whole section of physics that's just all about springs. Um, you learn how like spring rate can affect, you know, everything, you know, the tension on it, the length of the spring, the, the, um, tightness of the coils and everything. So I kind of had a new appreciation for suspension guys at that point. But, um, as far as actually riding a dirt bike, I mean, I guess, I guess if you really wanted to get into it, you could kind of apply it to like your form and everything. But, um, I don't know, it was more just for the medical thing.
Yeah. Did you do you think that you got better at testing your suspension the more that you learnt about that kind of stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because like I said, all through my amateur careers and stuff, we never took it that seriously. So actually the first time that I ever got suspension revalved was like two two years ago, really. So really? like my first pro raises and stuff were just on like stock suspension. So we never really did like testing or anything, but you know, I, I like to think that like when I started to actually do some suspension testing, I was maybe able to come into it with a little bit more like knowledge than the average person. But I mean, there's so much that goes into suspension, you know, like th there's just so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a rabbit hole. And I mean, I often think that there's not even that many suspension guys that know how much goes into suspension. <laughs> maybe, man. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's it's a lot of voodoo. It seems like to me. I mean, someone could probably mess with my suspension pretty bad, and uh, I wouldn't maybe not even know it. Or someone could say they were doing a lot and do nothing, and it, I would go out there and say it felt better. So, I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it's voodoo some of it, but definitely like this is my first year riding actual A kit suspension, and dude, it does make a huge difference when you get suspension that actually works really well for you. What suspension are you running? Have you got the WP cone valve stuff on your um, on your KTM? Yeah, this year was the first year I went out and actually dropped some money and got um, the WP cone valve. Um, I got that through Race Tech, and then I had Race Tech set it all up for me. So I didn't go with the rear shock, um, just the forks, and then I ran the stock rear shock all revalved by Race Tech. And this was, dude, my favorite bike I've ever ridden for sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about the cone valve then. Like what, how big was that difference? Because I did a race a few weeks ago or like a couple months ago now, and I got given a set of cone valves that got set up for me. Um, it was the roughest track I've ever rode in my entire life. <laughs> and I wish that I could go back and just ride like my normal tracks and do my normal sort of riding with those uh forks and just to to really get an idea but i mean i definitely noticed that it just felt like there was like more dampening it, i don't know if that makes sense but like whatever's inside a set of forks that make it feel smooth and control the dampening it felt like there was three times more of whatever it was so it's not like the i would i was explaining to people like i looked at a bump coming up and then the suspension worked how my mind's eye saw it working. Like there wasn't like, any, <laughs> it was still like, I was still hitting a bump, but there was no, oh yeah, that bump will do this. And I was like, oh shit. No, that bump did like a lot more. And I wasn't ready for that. If that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Like I always say that like, if something's working correctly, you're not even going to notice it because that's like, you know, it's doing its job at that point. And that's the thing about suspension is that you never like realize how good your suspension is working until you ride something worse. Mm. And so like when I put, and sometimes you don't even realize you're going faster because you're going way smoother and you're going faster, but it just doesn't feel like you're as out of control. So like the very first time I rode my KTM was with the cone valves on and I was like, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm going pretty good, but like it, I don't feel like I'm getting sketchy or anything. So like, I don't think I'm really going that fast. And then I got back on my Honda and that was when I made the video comparing the two. And, uh, dude, I was so out of control riding that like, I was like, bro, I have got to be going faster on this thing because I am out of control right now. 
And then obviously went back and looked at the video and like did the lap times and stuff. And I was like, no, dude, I was like three seconds a lap faster on the KTM, even though it felt like I was going slower. So yeah, suspension is one of those things where like you can't just go out and objectively be like, yep, this is better or yep, I'm going faster on this. You have to actually like take some lap times and have some people like analyzing it for you. But um, I guarantee if you were on some stock forks on whatever that track was you were riding, you you would have known it. I think the biggest thing between the stock forks and the cone valves um, that I noticed this year riding, because one week I had to get my cone valves redone. And so I threw my old stock forks back on is that the uh the air forks are way softer so like coming into corners um when i'm hard on the front brake it dives down a lot more and like rides in the bottom of the stroke but whatever it is like i've heard that air fork can like create more friction or whatever on hard hits but when i would like launch off of a single and land flat it felt like i had a rigid fork on my bike mm. because it would not absorb that at all which was weird because i thought the forks were softer so then when I rode with the cone valves, like it would absorb big hits like that way better, but it would also stay higher in the stroke, like under heavy braking. So yeah, I don't know. It's gotta just be the valving and everything or whatever, but it's definitely way, way better than stock. Especially if you have someone that knows how to set it up like race tech, like mm. it's crazy how much of a difference it makes. Yeah. That was one thing. There was this one single, there was like a big tabletop. And then like rough kind of bumps coming up to this single and you could kind of like do a bit of a bum wiggle scrub off it. And there was a couple times where like in the race where I had guys next to me and then there was like a real rutted section, like a rutted left-hand turn that you'd have to go into and then another jump after that. And so I just didn't want to be going into that turn with people around me. So I was like sending that single as far as I could and that was probably the one section of the track where I could really, really tell that those forks were quite a bit better because you'd, you'd sort of land on the angle into the turn and it just really worked. And I know what you mean, like you get that feeling on the, the stock fork where it's like it feels really harsh through your hands, but it's like a bottoming sort of harshness. It's not like a um, it's stiff and it's not moving. It's like, it's moving too much. And then you're getting like a, an impact from it kind of thing. Yeah, dude, I wish, I mean, this year opened my eyes huge on what a suspension can do. And I wish I would have had it like forever, but, uh, yeah, if you've never ridden some a kit before, I highly recommend it. Cause like I said, I rode the a kit the very first time I rode my KTM. And then I didn't ride the stock fork until that day that I was just talking about where I had to get my forks redone. And so I threw the stock ones back on and I was like, bro, I rode stock suspension for so long. Like there's probably going to be hardly any difference. And dude, honestly, I did like two sessions and I was like, I might as well load up and go home because it's so bad. But, uh, yeah. And I loved air forks too. Like back when the Hondas had the air forks in like 13 and 14 or whatever, those were like some of my favorite handling bikes. I like the air fork. So I don't know exactly if it's the fact that the, the KTM air fork is that much different or whatever, but yeah do yourself a favor and get some good suspension. <laughs> yeah, dude. I, I think that, that that was one of the questions I got asked a lot was people like, well, would you buy them? And I was like, well, yeah, like there's no, if I could afford to go and do that right now and I didn't have a business to run, like I would 100% do that. But it's just like that, it just ain't on my priority list. But if money wasn't a problem, there's no way I would not run those cone valves. Yeah, a lot of people think like I'm not a pro, so it's not going to benefit me. Like that's just not 
true at all. Like better equipment is going to make anyone go faster, no matter what level they're at. You know, it's like people always talk about this in like cycling and stuff too. Like, why do I need more aerodynamic helmets or whatever? I'm not Peter Sagan, but it's like wearing a wearing a more aerodynamic helmet is going to make you faster, even if you're going slow, you know, like it's worth it for you to do that if you want to be as good as you can be. So it's justifiable, like no matter what skill you are. I always thought that too. When I was an amateur, I was like, like I'm slow, dude. I don't need that, but it will make you go faster. I promise. <laughs> well, not for me. It's not even about being faster. To me, it's about being safer. Like the you know, like exactly what you just described about you got back on the Honda and you were like, dude, I'm sending it. Like this is sketchy. I'm like sketchy fast right now. But it's like you weren't sketchy fast. You were just sketchy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, true. I mean, I didn't even think about it like that, but I remember, I think it was Weston Pike one day rode one of uh, the stock Suzuki's or something for like an intro video they were doing. And I remember him saying that like, he actually was scared um, because the suspension was so soft that like he was just bottoming out everywhere and it was like dangerous to ride stock suspension for him. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I believe that like, yeah, for me, the, the thing that if I was like, I do want to try and get some, um, cone valves. Like I'm close to WP. So I I feel like I could get them not at the full price, hopefully. But I mean, even then it's still like super expensive, but to me, it's just like a, it's just a safety thing. Like I could be safer, more comfortable, have more like wiggle room for error. Maybe the laps come a bit easier, which means I'm not getting tired as quick, which means the risk of crashing it's probably going to be less if you're, you know, it's just like risk management in my eyes more than anything. And it's like, if you are a guy that loves to ride and you're going to ride regardless, like whether you've got a good bike or not, if you don't have a good bike and you're going to ride, like your risk factor is just higher. Like that just is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can talk all day about the price of like a cone valve fork but if it's gonna be the difference between you crashing and not like i promise an acl replacement is gonna be more expensive than the ak fork so like yeah. yeah like you said a little little injury management right there like is definitely worth it in my eyes so go to race tech is what we're saying brought to you by yeah go to race tech jeff jeff <laughs> uh one of the cool things that uh we talked about before we did the podcast as well was the video that you made on how clutch works and I've been riding motorcycles for 20 plus years and that explanation of a clutch completely changed not only like obviously my knowledge I'm like oh no our clutch works now but the idea of using a clutch feeling a clutch what's happening when I'm riding using the clutch like just that little bit of extra knowledge that you gave me around a clutch really made like a massive difference and man i was i don't know why that video in particular just struck me so much but i was like damn jeff walker is valuable (laughs) well thanks man like when i was making that video i was like really wondering like if if this was just super common knowledge and people were going to be like yeah dude we all know how a clutch works or whether it wasn't common knowledge at all um but like the more you know about your bike, like the better, you know, um, I, I, a lot of people don't even know like what putting stiffer clutch springs in your clutch will do. Like, obviously they know it makes the clutch pull harder, but beyond that, like they don't actually really know what it's doing to their motorcycle and they don't know like 
with having softer springs is a bad thing, like what damage it could be doing. Um, so I really like putting out videos like that where maybe people can learn some stuff. And especially if I have made the mistake of, you know, not making those changes and doing like, you know, you know, doing harm to my motorcycle, which I have obviously the Honda clutches, I've exploded a few of those guys. And that's how I know how that works. So I'm like stoked that I can put my experience, especially at the level that I ride at. I really put like the equipment to the test. Um, and I'm not using like factory parts that the average Joe can't get. Mm. So I like the fact that I'm able to do all this testing and stuff and put in the time and make these videos so that other people don't go and like blow up their new $10,000 dirt bike. If it's as simple as just buying a hundred dollars worth of clutch springs to like save their $10,000 dirt bike. Like, I think that's sick. Mm. And where did that knowledge come from? I guess like, do you, you seek that out or it's just your own trial and error then? So like, let's say for example, that clutch is like you blew up a bunch of clutches and then you're like, all right, I need to figure this out. Like, what was the process of you acquiring that knowledge? Um, I was just curious, like I blew up a clutch and so I had to take it all apart and I was just kind of like looking at the pieces and like moving it around. And I was like, I just had like an epiphany where I was like, oh my God, like this is how a clutch works actually. Like no wonder putting stiffer springs in will stop it from exploding. Like it just puts more friction on and stops it from heating up so much, you know? So I just kind of had an epiphany and then I was like, I need to tell people about this because there are so many people on Hondas out there who like who I could help because a lot of my pro racing friends have that same problem. And I would always tell them to put like stiffer clutch springs in cause it would help, but I didn't really know why. And like, I feel like now people can kind of see exactly why. And like, it's so sick that like, I know exactly what it's going to do and why it's saving the clutch now. And so did you, after you had that kind of experience, did that make you want to dive like deeper into the bike in general? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm like super scared to like open up a motor and start looking inside of there. Cause I don't want to mess anything up, but like, I wish I had just an old thrasher bike that I could just dissect, like take apart and like discover why every fatal thing that has ever happened to one of my bikes, like figure out why and like how I could prevent that. Um, luckily bikes are pretty good these days. So like other than the clutches, like nothing gnarly happens, but like it definitely made me want to like mess around with gearing, like mess around with like hydraulic clutches, figure out like how those worked and how you can mess around with those. Cause once I got my KTM and I took that, um, clutch cover off and it was just a completely new design in there. It had like, doesn't have springs at all. It just has like a, you know, plate that like flexes Mm. or whatever. So like, it's definitely made me a lot more curious. And as a kid, I never did like any sort of like bike work or anything. Like my dad always laughs at me now because I do like everything and I'm super particular about it. And he's like, where the heck did this come from? Like you were never like this. So yeah, I definitely enjoy it. Um, at the end of the day, if it's my race bike, I want someone like, you know, really certified working on it and making sure it's all good. But if it's just some general maintenance stuff like that, like I love tearing bikes apart. And yeah, so you did that Repsol Nikki Hayden bike too, rest in peace, that poor thing. Um, but like, where did that inspiration come from to do that Nikki Hayden bike? And, you know, like that, that thing did super well for you on YouTube too, right? Well, one second, I'm changing a battery in the old camera. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no dramas. We got all the time in the world. All 
right, we're rolling. We on. <laughs> yeah, so the Nikki Hayden thing was like, I knew immediately because of the Red Bull straight rhythm that I did, like a couple months before I got the CR250, like seeing all the replica bikes that were at Red Bull straight rhythm that year was just like, I knew I wanted to make some sick replica. And um, when I got the CR250, like, I was looking at all the iconic 250s from back in the day, like um, all of the uh, old like 80s bikes with the the fork boots and like the blue seats and everything. And I was like, I could have done a Ricky Carmichael replica bike. And I was like, man, this is like all been done before. I want to do something unique, especially because I'm going to be building it on YouTube where like it needs to have that, you know, click factor or whatever. So I started to look at like famous Hondas in other forms of motorsports. And like the, the biggest one for me was I watch a lot of formula one. So I kind of wanted to originally base it off of, um, one of the formula one, like Red Bull cars. Cause they always do some really sick, like one-off liveries in the off season or when they're doing all their testing Yeah, testing. And, and stuff. so I actually, yeah. And they were sick and I was like, dude, we could do something really sick. Um, and then like I started to look deeper and more into the Hondas and I saw the, um, the Mark Marquez's bike and I was like, bro, that thing could actually be nasty. And then the reason I chose to do the Nikki Hayden is because I actually had 69,000, uh, subscribers at the time when I got the bike. Wow. So I was like, I saw Nikki Hayden was uh, number 69, obviously American like hero too. So it all just kind of kind of just meshed together um and yeah i'm very very sad that that bike got stolen but also really stoked that we you know got to capture the full build at least and kind of give a nice tribute to nikki because he's a legend for sure and so how did the bike get stolen like what what led to it getting stolen and like have you given up hope that that thing is like ever going to be found yeah. So after we got the bike all the way put together, there's like a little servo and CR250 owners will know this. There's like a little servo in the motor that controls the electronically controlled RC valve. And yeah. those things go bad all the time. And uh, I guess that one was seized up, but I had no idea. I didn't know what that even was. So I had taken it to a local bike shop. And, um, these things are like, they're discontinued and during, uh, COVID or whatever, they're like insanely hard to find and oh, shipping, yeah. like when you could find one shipping was taking forever. So it was sitting in a maintenance barn for like probably a month or two. Um, and just during that time, the maintenance barn got broken into and like 11 bikes were stolen. So it's definitely pretty, uh, pretty sad day, but, um, yeah, there's, I've kind of given up hope. I mean, the only reason I still keep a little bit of hope is because there's so many like unique parts on that bike that if any of them do pop up, like someone's definitely bound to see it, especially given the following and everything. But I don't know, man. I mean, it hasn't been found already, which is kind of worrying. It's probably just sitting in someone's like garage or in a ditch somewhere. Yeah. I'm pretty, pretty sad about that one. But on the other hand, it does give us the opportunity to like build a bigger and better one. So maybe we'll have to do that sometime soon. Yeah, so what, like, have you got any kind of ideas of bikes, like, builds and stuff that you want to do? I mean, I definitely want a 252 stroke because the whole reason I got one was because I never got a chance to ride a 252 stroke. Mm. I feel like that's kind of one of the bikes that's, like, very, like, niche because everyone everyone rides a 125 because that's, like, the stepping stone from super minis. But then you move on to a 250F and onto a 450F. And like, I feel like not a lot of people ride a CR or a 252 stroke. I never got to. 
And uh, that was like the main motivation. So I definitely want a, two, a 252 stroke. And I do like love Hondas and everything. So I'm kind of thinking about doing another CR250. But I also don't want to just, you know, do the same thing. So I'm not exactly sure yet what I want to do. But I'm thinking another 252 stroke for sure. Yeah, dude. How insane is the whole bike build YouTube thing? Dude, hundreds of thousands of subscribers for like, I mean, Cameron Nimela, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. People always roast me for it, but he does a killer job with the bike builds and like he's a good rider, but he's not like, you know, racing pro nationals or anything. So he doesn't have that like alluring factor at all. He just is so crazy good with his bike builds and like such a relatable guy. Like anyone could go out and build the exact same bike that he built he just does a really good job and he does really great tutorials too. So like mm. anyone who wants to know how to rebuild their carburetor, like he's the guy to go to. So yeah, I, th- I think that's sick. And plus, like I said before, like someday down, down the line, he can look back and like relive the process of building that bike. Like even for me that the, the Nikki Hayden bike got stolen, like I can go back and kind of like relive the memories that, you know, I had with that bike. So sick that people like, do those builds on youtube yeah man and like there's uh there's a couple like uh like cameron Demella, i reckon is the he's definitely like the g but then there's even like that tyler monaghan kid um i've spoken about him a couple times on here before and like he's got a crazy crazy youtube following and he does builds but then he like vlogs and stuff as well so like yeah it's a it's a it's such a crazy little youtube world that's going on in the whole moto scene and it's it's I guess it circles back to what we said before, but about like just seems still so untapped, eh? Yeah, for sure. I mean, motocross seems like a kind of small sport, like like just being in the industry and everything. It doesn't seem like it's that huge, but then you see someone who just literally does bike builds, just regular bike builds, and they have hundreds of thousands of, of subscribers. And it's like, dude, the potential is there. It's just, just you need to just do it. Just make mm. videos, you know? <laughs> So what, like the business side of it. So one thing that kind of was struck me before when we were talking before this is that like, you really don't have that many like industry contacts, but from a monetization point of view, like it, it's obviously like you'd be doing all right off YouTube financially, just off the revenue. So it's like, you don't need like an industry support uh, for it to be like a profitable business for you, but like, how is the, like the business side of it and, you know, to sort of do a lot of this, like without the industry support. Yeah, it's definitely a bummer that I'd like, don't know quite the right people to kind of like do more with what I have, but like, I feel like what I have going on could be really, really sick, which is why I'm really excited to be moving out to LA here soon, because I feel like there's, you know, that's obviously where the whole industry is. And I'm hoping I get to meet some people out there who can like, you know, who I can do some really cool stuff with. Um, because I feel like there's so much potential to do some really, really epic stuff that people would love to watch. Um, so I'm hoping that that is like something that will happen here in the near future, but yeah, it's kind of cool. I feel like on the other hand, people enjoy that. I'm not like that deep into Mm. the industry because like coming back to it, it just makes me way more relatable. And like literally anybody could do what I did because like, even if they don't know a single person in the sport, like neither did I, I still really don't know too many people. So yeah, I feel like it's a matter of just 
you know, going to a local track and just seeing the right person and striking up a conversation. And that could like, you know, be the difference between, uh, you know, doing some really cool stuff or just continuing to do what I'm doing. But hopefully I can meet some people here coming up and, do, you know, do a lot cooler stuff with the channel rather than just, you know, the, the race vlogs and stuff. It would be really sick to do some like way cooler, bigger stuff. Yeah, there's definitely, I think you're in the, from, from like me looking at you as somebody that is in the same sort of lane. Like I, I've, I've got, uh, I'd say that's probably one of my strengths is the fact that I do know so many people in the industry, but I think that, uh, from the business side of this podcast, I definitely made a point at the start of this to like kind of do it on my own and not like I could I could get use my contacts for like guests because they were just it was genuine like they were my friends like the people that I was getting on the podcast and then that gathered its own momentum to where like you know me and Celie like Cole came on I didn't really know Cole but you know through friends of friends like it's quite easy to to sort of get in touch but from like a business point of view like all of my initial sponsors were outside of the industry I never really kind of tapped into the business side of the podcast initially because I'd seen that in the past, like when I first started filming and stuff, I, uh, I, it was kind of like a weird thing where the industry propped up my filming initially. Like I couldn't get there. I couldn't do anything without the help of the industry. But then I almost think that kind of like holds you back in a sense because people always, I always felt like people thought, uh, I owed them something even though it was like an, a business exchange, like, hey, you pay me for this video, I'll give you this video. But it was never like a clear exchange, if that makes sense. And it was almost like, well, dude, we gave you the money, you know, we helped you do that. And it wasn't, it was like, yeah, but then I delivered the the product. So I think that that was all, that was something that when I came into doing the podcast, I was like, all right, cool. I'm not going to have that happen now. Then it can be like, this is my own thing. No one's going to feel like they... I owe them anything and it can kind of stand alone from like a business sense. So, you know, if I look at what you've done from that angle, I think that to have like, you know, the build the base that you've built, that's probably the move. And now it's like really easy. Like companies are fucking crazy not to get involved with Jeff Walker. Well, I hope that's true. Um, like I'm still learning a lot. Like this YouTube thing has taught me so much about business. It's insane. And uh, like the biggest one being kind of like what you touched on is like I always try and over deliver, like undersell mm. and over deliver everything, um, which is probably like one of the reasons I don't know too many people because I like I don't really know exactly what Jeff Walker is worth, you know, mm. um, and I don't want to like I don't want to um get ahead of myself and like come off it in the wrong way and like like make people think that I'm something that like I think I'm bigger than I am or whatever you know mm. so and that's probably I probably should have maybe a little bit more confidence in that and um just have the balls to like walk up to the right people and just say the right things um but like I never feel like I don't know I I just don't really like see myself what I actually am I guess um is what I'm trying to say cuz mm. like that's never been my focus or anything like that so I'm trying to like kind of switch over into more of a business mindset so that I can, you know, because at the end of the day, like it's going to make way cooler content and it's exactly. just going to be better in every aspect, you know, and I want that. Like, 
I have like really big aspirations and like things I've never really talked about, like on the YouTube channel. Um, I just talk about it with my really close friends, like my five-year plan and where I want to be in like the next couple of years and what I want to do with the content and everything. And like the only way I'm going to do that is if I just grow some balls and go talk to the right people and make some stuff happen. Cause like, I want to do really, really sick stuff because I think we have something like pretty unique and like, I don't know if it's replicatable. Um, so like I need to like seize it right now and do as much with it as I can because I feel like there's some gnarly potential, man. Yeah, dude, I totally agree, man. And like, yeah, I mean, I've definitely see you doing honestly whatever you want to do in the industry. And I think that, yeah, you've done it in such a good way. Like you've built such a solid base and to the point where like you could grow just off YouTube, I think. Like if, if the industry never really even gave you anything, like I still think you could get to where you want to be. And I mean, I don't know, like if you want to talk about, it, but I'd be dope. I'd, I think it's dope to hear like some of the plans that you do have, you know, like, and I genuinely would love to help you achieve those things if there was anything I could do, you know? Yeah, it's not like it's not a secret or anything that I'm purposely keeping. It's just I know that those plans are so far in the future and so many things have to happen in the correct way for those for them to happen that I don't want to like I've never wanted to bring it up and like get people's hopes up or whatever. But like there's a lot of like influences I have from other sports and other like, um, you know, outlets of um, just media and everything like um, like I want to I want to kind of start. Oh, can you hear that? Yeah. It, I, <laughs> it's not coming through too it's bad. A, it's oh, it's a subscriber it? thing on uh, Twitch because I'm, uh, I'm doing it through uh, Streamlabs or whatever. But anyways, uh, okay. I'll run it back. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't hear it through this end. Okay, cool. Um, But like if anyone is uh, familiar, like I do a lot of like gaming in my free time cause I'm up here in the snow and stuff. So like when I can't be racing, I like to do a lot of gaming and, uh, there's, uh, an individual in esports for like call of duty who was a professional call of duty player. And then he eventually went on to, he built his following on YouTube and everything and went on to start like his own like esports organization. And now he has like a $35 million facility in LA. He's got like, he runs teams in like multiple different esports categories and stuff. And I'm like, man, like I'm, I know I'm like 1% the way in right now, but like I could see that like in my future someday. And I would love to do that. Like start a team of my own once I'm like done racing motocross Um, obviously like I love racing and it's my passion and I wish more than anything that I could go out and win championships, but, and I'm going to do everything I can to like try and make that as real as possible. But like, I know that my future is in the media aspect of motocross. And like, once I'm finally transitioned into that, I definitely want to like start my own sort of team or like organization, try and open some sort of facility where like I can, you know, Uh, just keep tabs of everything, start a business and like start doing stuff in more aspects than just supercross, like do like some GNCC and some trials and just start an organization that like has never been done before in our sport. I think that's like probably end goal. I don't know how long it would take or what exactly needs to happen to make that a reality, but you know, getting in contact with the right sponsors and just making sure that I keep the media and everything like really high, keep people engaged. Like I think in a couple of years that could be possible maybe i like to think so at least yeah dude i mean i think that yeah the the 
the thing that you've really got going on is that you're obviously bringing people into the sport that like aren't you know like if you want to say the casuals you know what i mean and i think that that's definitely the the place that it it has to go i think for uh for like real growth in the sport you know yeah i mean like people say whatever they want to about like the industry as a whole but um like professional racing anyways like people want to think that it's on a decline because like you know more spots are going away in the pro scene and everything but like nobody wants to like do anything about it it almost seems like but like if more people would just start getting like new people into the sport like that's what we need desperately it's just more new people coming into the sport we need to make it way more accessible to people like you know make two strokes sick again you know show people that like you can compete on a two thousand dollar two stroke you don't need to buy a ten thousand dollar motorcycle you know you can Mm. you can do all that and i feel like that's a big way to like get more people into the sport um just make it way more casual friendly like you said and and make it like way more dope like i feel like the coolest thing about the youtube channel is when someone dms me or messages me and they're like yo dude like i i used to ride when i was a kid but i haven't ridden in the past like 15 years but you know i watched your video and i went out and bought a bike and like i'm riding again i'm like dude we just need more people to do that and like we're bring we need to just bring more people in and i feel like creating content is like the way to do that and i think like people don't quite realize that yet but i think in the next like couple years people are going to start realizing that like content is king and it's going to be what ultimately could like I don't want to say rebirth the sport or whatever, but I feel like it could do a lot for the sport if more people would just start to do it. Dude, I 1 trillion percent agree. And the thing is, that's crazy. Like, I mean, you'd probably find the same thing. Like we haven't really spoken about like YouTube analytics or whatever, but like, I think my impressions on YouTube this year is probably going to be up around like 35, 40 million. And so I don't have that, in terms of views like that i guess that's like the the game is to like convert those impressions into like actual views and i think i'm probably at like fucking 11 percent conversion rate but it's like <laughs> to to have access uh like i'm showing a thumbnail of a dirt bike to 40 million people like that is crazy dude like there is no other place and that's why I've gone so hard on the YouTube thing. Like I, I probably put like, I mean, more so now as well, but man, I'd say like, even when my YouTube's doing shit, I probably put like 60% of my time into YouTube to get like essentially nothing out of it. But like, to like, I can see the potential just purely in the, the reach and like the overall impressions. And I just personally can't see anything else in the sport like any other platform any other like even national television with supercross like i just don't think that the impressions um or there's another better way to reach more casuals and convert more people and i mean i've noticed that i've had more uh like especially these last few weeks of like doing good on youtube like i've had so many dms that are exactly the same as what what you've said like and that was one of the cool things about the this whole mid 2k build that we're doing is like we put out videos showing how fun it is to ride a $2000 piece of shit and it's like that needs to be like a really heavy part of the messaging it's like yeah cool dude like if you haven't rode in 10 years and you don't really want to like 
spend 10 grand on something you may or may not want to keep doing, go buy a $2,000 piece of shit on Craigslist and come have fun with the rest of us. And, you know, like, I just, I just don't, I don't even know that the industry even knows what they've got in having like a Jeff Walker in the industry that's like in the pro scene and in the YouTube world. But man, it's just like, yeah, I, I don't know that there'd be many people reaching more people than what you would. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that, man. Um, it's crazy, like how the past two years have panned out. And it's like, like you said, I mean, I this is around the time when I have to like, you know, start sending resumes to people to new sponsors, because it's like the time that that all happens. And every year that I make like I, I get my my YouTube analytics together and put it on a page just to like show people what it is like my mind just it's it's crazy how many millions of people that it reaches, man. And like it's it's easy to just see a number uh, like under a video, like 60,000 and just be like, oh, yep, 60,000 views, whatever. But when you actually like quantify it and like think that that could fill an entire football stadium. Yep. Like that's insane, dude. You upload you entertain an entire football stadium of people if you upload, you know, if you upload every single day, like at the end of the month, you know how many people that is like it's crazy, man. And uh, it's very influential. Like you said, if you if you're out there shredding on like a two thousand dollar CR 125, like I, I wish I could like see how many people went out and bought a CR 125 after that video got like a million and a half views or whatever. Like it's it's yeah, it's crazy how many people it reaches. And I think like I think people are starting to realize it now more and more, like um, more and more people are starting to finally like make videos and stuff. And it seems like the sponsors are more like tailoring over to the the media type thing. But like, I think it's only a matter of time before like people fully start to realize it. And uh, maybe I'm a little bit ahead of the ball on that. And so I'm not like quite, you know, quite reaching the, or quite getting the dividends that it pays out yet, but hopefully soon people will start to realize that so that, you know, we can start doing some even cooler stuff. Cause I just really want more people to get into the sport at the end of the day. What, um, so what like partnerships, um, do you have right now with, uh, with business like, or with companies and what's, is it all just been stuff that you've kind of just like, you know, had like a half, half hours go at like hey like mate can you help me with my youtube channel like because i just yeah i don't think people i don't think businesses have like the actual perspective of the kind of people that would be watching your shit yeah a lot of the time it's just like i'll i'll send out like i don't like to overplay it like i said so, I, the the thing uh, is it's, not, the, it's not coming. the sound is gone all right it's i'll not, just keep talking then yeah my bad. <laughs> no, no, that's so good. But yeah, a lot of it is like when I just send out my applications, like I know that people aren't quite aware of like the power of the media and stuff yet. So like I never try and like overplay the the YouTube mm. side of things. I still come at it like I'm a professional racer, but then I just kind of put the YouTube thing on the side. Like, like if you guys are also interested in content, like this is what I do. And, you know, maybe one out of every five companies will like have like maybe it's a younger person working in the uh the you know media side of things and they're like yeah yeah we need to like jump in on the youtube side of things and those are the companies that are like really really fun to work with because they'll be like hey like what if we did this for a video or like hey we have a new like product that's coming out like would you mind like including it in a video or whatever and so a lot of the times it's like that but um i also did actually hire like an agent to, to like help me reach um companies outside the sport 
Yeah. Um, cause I feel like that's like where a lot of untapped potential is too. So like recently I got like hooked up with like Manscaped to do an ad and, uh, like a couple like, like phone apps and stuff. So, um, I think that's going to be kind of a thing that I'm going to have to start doing too, is kind of reaching outside the industry. And, and it's a good way to like show motocross off to a whole new audience of people too. So I kind of like finding some outside the industry sponsors. Um, cause it shows that like we're a marketable sport and like companies from outside the industry are like, yeah, this is like worth dedicating some time and some money into. And, uh, I think that's sick. It kind of shows like where we're at as a sport in my opinion. Yeah. And the thing is like, it, it's a very, the motocross has like a really good demographic because if you're the type of person that can afford a dirt bike, like you've obviously got a job you're of a you know certain age like 18 to 35 and it's like that's like the key demographic for yeah companies like manscaped anyone that wants to buy like a truck or there's so much that is marketed to that demographic and it's like you know you can try and sell boots or whatever but it's like all these people that are watching like they they need uh, a lot more stuff and they've actually got jobs and they've they obviously work hard like if you're a guy that can afford to go and ride dirt bikes on the weekend like you're a hard working like solid dude you know yeah and like you said like uh, i mean motocross products and everything like obviously the people watching my channel they do need tires and boots and suspension and everything like that but they also every single one of them like needs insurance you know like uh, an insurance company would be a huge sponsor to land, like something like Geico or whatever, you know, and everyone needs, you know, toothpaste or deodorant or whatever it yeah, is, you yeah. know, everyone needs to trim their beard or whatever, you know, like, and those I like, I'm really trying to reach more companies like that to bring in um, just because, you know, that makes sense to do um, from a media perspective. But I also really do love working with the motocross companies too, because like, it's it, like nothing's more sick than when like one of my favorite sponsors like race tech or, or Alpine stars or whatever will reach out to me. And they're like, yo, like the code that we gave you is like popping off big time. Like, thank you for making that post or whatever. I'm just like, there's an actual like tangible impact that the videos and stuff are making. So like, that's probably one of the sickest feelings like of this whole thing is like, like realizing that you can actually make an impact just as a, a dude with a camera and a dirt bike. Like it's insane to me. Yeah, man, it's super cool. And how much time, like, are you dedicating to uh, YouTube these days? Like, what sort of a week look like for you as a YouTuber now? It really depends, like, what the content is that I'm putting out at the time. Like, during the pro national season, when it's, like, a lot of, like, hard editing and there's a lot of, like, third-person footage and stuff that I have to edit together and, like, you know, make sure that, there's a good song and and uh, I'm like filming the people that are around me too to kind of capture that engagement. It's a lot more time than like <clears throat> when I'm just in the off season and I can throw a GoPro on and just spin some laps at a cool track and just upload that like raw. Like uploading a video like that probably takes like an hour maybe, but mm. doing the race vlogs, I mean, you probably put six to seven, sometimes more hours into just editing that. So, I mean, I try and like find that balance because like, I am a racer still and I, I want to be focused more so on the training and the racing and everything so that, you know, without the racing and training there, there like isn't, you know, pro national content. So I want to make sure that that's all, you know, up to, mm. up to scratch for it. 
So I'm still in the mindset that I'm putting more like effort into the training and the riding side of things, but it's only going to be a matter of time before like <clears throat> it starts to transition over into more of the media type thing. But yeah, if I, if I upload three videos in a week, it's easily like 15 to 20 hours of editing probably just put into those videos and like especially making the thumbnail i mean i know you know making youtube's videos and stuff the thumbnail and the title is everything man like you could have the sickest video in the world if you don't have a good looking title and thumbnail like no one's watching that <laughs> what's uh what's your what's your uh take on uh on clickbait all right so my thing on clickbait is I try and be as close to clickbait as possible without actually lying about anything that happens. I feel like that's the fair medium. Like it, like if you have a tip over, you're allowed to use the word crash in the title. I think that's fair. <laughs> Even if it's not a gnarly crash, you're allowed to use the word crash. If you threw a whip, you can use the word like big whip in the title. Um, but like, I think there's a line that you cross where if your title is something that doesn't actually happen in the video, that's scummy in my mm. opinion. I totally agree. I've been getting shit lately. Like, yeah, hey, you know what? Fucking biggest month on YouTube ever. Most clickbaity month. So I don't know what the fuck yeah. I'm supposed to do, dog. Um, but there hey, was like, if anything, you gotta blame the viewers for clicking on the clickbait videos. If you guys didn't click on the clickbait videos, we wouldn't make clickbait titles. I'm just saying. Hey, it's, <laughs> it's honestly the platform. Like, but so perf. This is like the perfect example, right? And uh, it's funny because I actually. I actually was like, oh, fuck, I better text Cole and see, like, how he feels about this. And uh, so there was a, a video that I posted with Sealy that it said, like, I quit, I didn't retire. And so mm -hmm. it's literally a direct quote from him, but the context means the opposite of what you'd read and imply that it would be clickbait. And so, like, my argument is, like, dude, it was a direct quote. I get a hundred characters to make the title. So I titled, I, I got a direct quote from the video. You had it in your head what the context of that is. So you could have taken it in a completely different way, but you watch the video, you get the context and you go, oh, he didn't quit. And you know <laughs> what I mean? He retired. But so anyway, it's just like a, it's a funny thing that people want to get angry for it. But I'm, it's like, dude, this made you want to watch the video and you got the context to the title. You know what I mean? Like it, it in my eyes, I'm like, if it, if there's ever a direct quote in a video, it cannot be called clickbait. You made up the context. Oh, that's fair game, dude. That's fair game. Those words were said in the video. It's just a quote, nothing more. Whatever yeah. context you associated with it. That's your own deal, man. <laughs> but I did laugh when I saw a vital thread started about that. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it, it was harmless, but I, I watched your video and I saw the title and I was like, oh, nice. He's really utilizing that. And then I got on vital and I saw the title as a threat and I was like, this man, he's getting out there. Let's go. <laughs> oh, that's so, funny. Doing I it right, man. Doing it right. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, I just don't think people understand that that's like the game that you have to play. And it's like, I avoided that game and I got no views on YouTube. And it's like, the re people don't understand as well that the money that I made off YouTube last week paid just paid my editor for the week. You know what I mean? So it's yeah, like, dude. it literally takes that. Yeah, I tried 
too, like to not clickbait very much at all. Luckily for us, motocross is a super gnarly sport, so we can use words like gnarly and like sick and stuff. So like people <laughs> just naturally want to clickbait or want to click on moto videos. So like especially if it's like shredding a six sand track and the thumbnail is like a, a set of nasty like sand whoops or whatever people are just naturally going to click on it so i don't like have to clickbait too bad but there are definitely some times when i like you know you ride that fine line and you immediately see the benefits of it which is insane but yeah it's kind of unfortunate that that's the way it is and sometimes like i said you put like 10 hours of editing into a video and just because you didn't clickbait it gets like no views or whatever like there's there's no incentive to not clickbait for sure <laughs> dude yeah that's actually that's actually probably all that needs to be said there's no incentive mm-hmm. not to clickbait yeah and like at the end of the day like no one's ever called me out for it because i think that the content does deliver so like as long as you deliver in the content you can say whatever you want in the title and yeah it's just what you got to do yeah i think that the um the podcast thing is weird for clickbait though because you like I will agree. Like I, I didn't twist Cole's words. They were Cole's words, but they just weren't in the context. So I think that people people go into it. I guess in maybe a little bit of a different way with like the podcast clips because you're just sort of like expecting the expectations so much uh, more open ended. Maybe, but yeah, it just seems people just seem to get way more mad at the whole thing. Maybe they feel like they've been duped or something. I don't know. <laughs> Nah, it's sick in the podcast thing because like you don't have to clickbait really because you're the people you have on are just clickbait in themselves. Like, I mean, just the fact that you had Cole Seeley on your on your podcast is like huge. You know, people want to hear what Cole has to say. And like, that's what I'm hoping when I go out to California that I'll have the opportunity to do more of like Cole has been an idol of mine forever, dude. Like there's a huge joke going around my like local tracks around here that like I was that we were like twin brothers separated at birth or something like yeah, somehow. Dude, I can see um, that, yeah. like i guess i guess we look alike or whatever but um i also like rode a honda and wore tld gear way back in the day so like that was like a big joke but like it would be sick to meet up with people like that out in california and make videos like riding with them because it's just it's good for like everyone involved like i would love to yeah. meet up with cole and ride some some sick like sand dunes or something like that would be awesome or any of the pros that are out there so that's why i'm excited to get out there and yeah, do some of that stuff. Dude, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I think that this trip, like, when are you actually going out to California? Uh, literally leaving, like, tomorrow. Dude, so. that's going to be so sick. Yeah, I think you've got a huge opportunity, like, and yeah, like I said, I'll uh, I'll definitely try and do what I can from from my side to sort of make some of that that content happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's so, like, it's almost like you're this, like, fringe famous dude on it's like you're a bigger youtuber you know what i mean than what like any of these dudes are as well so it's like they've got like the clout from the racing perspective but then you've got like the youtube clout so it's kind of like two there's definitely like a mutually beneficial thing that you know not any privateer could just rock up and like hey cole i could like add value to what you're trying to do here yeah dude it's always wild like anytime like a pro or i say pro i mean i'm a pro too but like one of the factory guys or just someone that i look up to like anytime that they like acknowledge like the fact that you know they acknowledge my videos or whatever it's like so crazy to me because in my eyes i'm still just jeff walker like privateer motocross racer pre-med student 
And like, it's insane to me that like when I was watching the Cole Sealy episode and he like commented that he had seen some of the videos, like, dude, that's just nuts. Like in what world does that happen to just a regular person like me? So, I mean, I'm trying to take full advantage of it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so with, with the, the racing side of things too, like where do you sit right now as like a guy that's doing it to like how good can a privateer do against a factory rider? Like what are the advantages that you've seen over these past couple years? And like, can, can, can a privateer be competitive with for the, the factory guys or like, where do you think that that line is? Um, I mean, there are definitely privateers out there who do a lot with not a lot, you know, I mean, you look at someone like Benny Bloss or like, you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there. Um, Henry Miller is one guy who's absolutely kills it just day in and day out. And he's just riding on stuff that like anyone can go out and buy. But, um, I don't know. You can look at people like Freddie Noren. I remember, I think it might've been like 2013 or something when he first got his like first, uh, first shot at like a factory HRC ride outdoors. I think it was yeah. actually him and Sealy that were teammates for that. Um, and he like, I remember a quote from him saying that like he never knew a bike could handle that good before. Like, mm. and, and that's someone who probably had some pretty good equipment at his disposal at the time because he is like fast Freddie and, you know, he was killing it as a privateer and definitely had some good sponsors, but I can't really speak on it because I've never ridden a factory bike or anything like that. Um, but I have to imagine not only just physically how much better the bike is, but also what that does for you mentally, like just the confidence that you have going into a section has got to be insane. And just the fact that you have like people that are, you know, um, you know, kind of banking on your success, which has actually kind of in a way like is something that I've been feeling lately the past couple of years with the YouTube channel is because normally before it was just like, ah, uh, you know, if I didn't make it into the main, it was just whatever, you know, like bummer, mm. I'll come back out next weekend. But now it's like, if it's I like know I'm not in the spot that I need to be in, yeah, it's like there's going to be 100,000 people who are like wanting me to make the main oh, just as bad or maybe more than I actually want to make the main. And it's like I want to do it for them, too, not just for me. So I'm assuming if you are on a factory bike and everything, like there's got to be a lot of that same feeling with, you know, I mean, I can only imagine what it feels like to have Mitch Payton like dissecting every move that you make out on the track and, you know, making sure that you're staying in line. So I think most of it or a lot of it, at least, is just mental the the sort of like confidence boost that it has to be being on a factory ride and knowing that those people believe in you enough to like spend all that money on you and invest in you that much that like they think you're that sick so i think more than anything it's probably mental mm. is there a difference or like what's the gap feel like in a pro national pit between like the privateers and then the factory team because to be honest, like I only ever worked with factory teams and I don't think I ever even really thought about uh, like privateers as fucked up as that kind of sounds. Does it <laughs> I mean, feel I like that as a right privateer? There. I don't know if, I don't know if anything else needs to be said, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of <laughs> what it feels like. You're kind of like, if you show up in a moto van at a pro national, um, they pretty much just look over in the crappiest little corner of the lot and they're like, yeah, I think you can fit your van back in there. It's a little muddy, but you'll be all right. Like, <laughs> it's pretty shitty, to be honest. But um, that's just part of the gnarliness of the sport. And if anything, it kind of makes people want to support privateers a little bit more. So, I mean, it sucks for sure. But, like, 
at the end of the day, you just got to deal with it. Do you think that there's something that could be done? Like, do you think that, is there a movement that we should be working towards to like help privateers and I guess like up the living standards of a privateer, you know, like let's bring the privateers into the middle class. <laughs> Cause I mean, it's <laughs> kind of like, you know, it, it sort of really is the, uh, you know, the 1% can have all the wealth, you know, like you could apply the same economic conversation to, uh, you know, the motocross industry as, as just like the general economy. Um, I think my, my card on my camera just filled up. Oh, sweet. Got it. If you want, I don't you know, know if, I don't know if you just want. Oh yeah. I mean, cool, we, yeah. Um, yeah. So we were talking about, uh, like, I don't know what, do you think that the, there needs to be like a movement towards like upping the living standard of a privateer essentially? Uh, it's kind of tough. I mean, like at the end of the day, we don't like owe anything to privateers. I think the biggest thing that privateers can do is market themselves a little bit more. You know, um, a lot of my friends who are privateers and even me, I mean, I'm guilty of it for, you know, before I started the YouTube channel, but I was really doing nothing to add value to myself. You know, I would show up just in a van with my bike in the back and I would park over in the corner and, you know, I had like 1500 Instagram followers, like, you know, no one even knew that I was at the race um, before I did the whole YouTube thing. So that's why I push so, so hard. Like I'm trying to get my best friend, Jerry Robin into it. I'm trying to get a bunch of, you know, people who I believe that they have the ability to do way bigger things than they're doing. They just need uh, to market themselves a little bit more. And like it, it will pay off immediately. I mean, it, it paid off for me and I'm not even as fast as someone like Jerry Robin is. So I'm just, I, I really try and harp on it. Like I can't even say it enough how privateers need to just start marketing themselves a little bit better, you know, add value to themselves so that companies will then value them and start to give them things. And, you know, people will just help out generally more and maybe they won't find themselves, you know, over in no man's land in the pro pits. Yeah. I mean, dude, honestly, that's probably the best possible answer that you could give and coming from somebody like you that has like actually walked the walk and not just kind of that there is a thing where you know like from my end i can definitely be the like i can definitely say like you know what we probably should do like more to advertise privateers there should probably be more broadcast opportunities for privateers in terms of you know like there's a point where i'm a realist of in terms of what does well like you know you want to highlight the top dudes you want to um, you know, give the people what they're kind of coming for. But I feel like when you, when you're the people that are running the sport, I think that, uh, you know, you sort of do owe, uh, everybody in the sport, their chance to shine, you know, it's not like we need to give participation awards out essentially, but it's like without, you know, you can't just have a, a gate that only has uh, factory guys on it otherwise there'd be 12 dudes that do every race so i think there's definitely things that can be done from like the promotion promotional side of the sport and the people within the industry but what you said is like the right now not we're not living in a perfect world if the sport does nothing else for us your answer is the answer for what the average dude needs to do yeah. And I mean, you are right. There's probably things that, you know, the promoters and stuff could be doing to help a little bit more, but like it's, 
it starts at the roots, you know, like how many people are trying to be professional motocross racers, like the split between the factory guys and the privateer guys. I mean, there's a couple tiers of privateer guys for sure. There's like the tier one guys who are like, you know, just on the cusp of making it in. And there's maybe like 10 of them. But beyond that, it's guys who just have everyday jobs. They ride, you know, maybe once a week if they're lucky when they can. And obviously, you know, that tier of riders are getting smoked by the top guys. I'm probably included in that group, maybe and in some category in between where I'm like not getting completely smoked, but I'm not also like right on the cusp. So, I mean, the best thing that people that the privateers can do is put eyes on them and give them you know, give fans a reason to cheer for them because yeah. like, I mean, if, if you have the entire, che- uh, the entire crowd cheering for you and pe- thousands of people back home, like looking for your name on the TV screen, like then maybe the camera will find its way onto your bike at some point throughout the main. So, I mean, you just got to market yourself at the end of the day. And that's something I'm like slowly learning. And I'm definitely lucky that I kind of like got on the, got on that wave so early enough to where it can like keep, you know, prolong my career a little bit more. And, and how important is it, do you think, to be uh, like realistic about your like speed level and what you can offer to uh, people? Because like you're very realistic about your speed. Like you're not out making claims that if you had this, you'd be able to compete. And if you had, because I feel like so many dudes spend time like, even dude, like even Joey Savachi, like when Joey was younger, like all he fucking did was tell me and anyone else that had listened and the verb guys, like how much better he'd be if he had this, this, and this granted, he ended up doing pretty good, but it's like, that was so much wasted energy from him. Uh, and I know so many guys like that where, you know, you get to the track and you're filming with the factory dudes and they're like, Hey man, how about you get a couple clips of me? Like if I had that and it's like, dude, fuck off. Like, come on, like maybe, <laughs> maybe you're right, but also just do your shit. Like I'm trying to do my shit, you know? So how much does like just being realistic about like where you're at in the food chain and like, m- like milking what you're worth as opposed to like thinking that you're worth more than you are. Yeah. I mean, it's like, there's a fine line you have to walk and I understand why people are like that because like on the inside, if you truly want to raise professional motocross, you have to think that you're a pretty bad dude on the inside. Like, even though I talk, like I, I know I'm realistic and I, I don't make claims of anything that I'm not, um, on the inside, I truly do believe in myself. Like I, I believe that I have like the talent to, you know, be where I want to be. And I think if you don't believe in yourself on that level, like, why are you even out there doing it? Um, you know, up front with people, I'm, I'm very like level headed and I know like where I'm at right now. And I, I don't try and like act like I'm anything that I'm not, but you know, like back in the day when like right before I kind of went to college, like I would battle with Aaron Plessinger or dudes like that all the time. Like, and in some cases I would like beat them and like to go and see what they have done. Like, you have to believe in yourself, um, whether you decide to, you know, display that for everyone else to see, um, that's your choice. And like, at the end of the day, you just need to be putting in the work behind the scenes and it doesn't really matter what you say. Um, as long as you're putting in the work and believing in yourself and you make it happen. I mean, it's way better to, 
um, not say those things and put the work in and then go on and do them than it is to say all those things and then never put in the work and amount to nothing. So, I mean, you got to believe in yourself. I don't blame those guys for thinking like that. It's a super like mental sport. So if you're, if you don't believe in yourself, then you might as well just, you know, quit racing. Mm. And what's the reaction that you get? So like, cause I've seen Jerry's been in like a couple of your videos. Um, what's the reaction you get? from those guys like do are people looking at you now and like trying to sort of replicate the stuff that you've got going on do you think or you know like why do you think there aren't more people doing what you've done um yeah i was always worried that like people would like think i was really cheesy or whatever like they wouldn't be down for the content at all and like everyone would be like oh it's just a youtuber or whatever but uh generally speaking like most people that i talk to even like some of the top pros and stuff like if i have my gopro on they'll like wave at me and be like what up dude and like you know that makes for sweet content but um i think the main thing is that people just like they don't want to have to put in the extra work like editing videos and stuff. Um, mm. I mean, obviously, being a professional motocross racer, especially if you're a privateer and you're doing all your own bike work, um, you're doing your own nutrition, like you're making your own workouts and everything. And you're you're your own bus driver, too. You know, you're driving to all the nationals and stuff. It is insanely hard and a lot of work, especially if you're in that grind phase that we were talking about before, where you're not just like getting, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 views every video. It's like you're putting in a lot of effort for not a lot of return on the investment. Um, but I mean, like I was saying before, you're never going to regret it and it could turn into way more. So like I'm trying mm -hmm. to tell everyone that like that's the mindset they should have, you know, because like it could propel their career into places that they never thought it, you know, could take them yeah no definitely dude what's the so like we'll talk a bit about like your racing this year like what was obviously it was a bit of a weird year but what were some of like the highlights of of this year for you and is there like are you still seeing like a year-on-year -year progression in terms of results yeah this year was by far the best year that i've ever had of professional motocross for sure and uh i think a lot of it is just due to the fact that I graduated last fall, so I had like most of um, the year to like start training for it. Normally, I go down to college in August and I really I'm I might find time to ride like once every two or three weeks while I'm really? in college and I'm there until like May, like May 5th is normally when uh, <clears throat> like classes are over. So I drive home to Michigan from Florida. I have like one week to get ready and then I drive out to Hangtown for round one. So it's like literally I have a week or two of training time. And uh, this year I finally graduated in the fall and had like all the spring to start training and stuff. Um, and so that's been massive. Um, and then obviously the fact that like companies are starting to help me out a little bit more with like a little bit better parts and everything. Um, yeah, this year has been insanely better. And I still felt super unprepared, like compared to what I want to be. Um, I think if I had like a few months on some good equipment, didn't make a bike change right before the season started or whatever, like I feel like I like I said, I still believe in myself and like you have to. And I still like believe that I could be getting like top 15s or whatever at every race. And uh, yeah, I feel like that 2021 um, is going to be like, kind of like that year for me. Hopefully that's what I'm hoping anyway. Yeah, dude, that's so sick to, to know that you were able to, I guess, do what you've done without really any kind of preparation. Yeah. I mean, it's always been tough. Um, and like, 
that's why the results have never been super great is because even if I qualify really well, like I'll get four or five laps in and then I'm just fall flat on my face <laughs> and, uh, the season's only like three months long. So you can't, I mean, you can race your way into shape, but like once the season starts, you can't be grinding out 30 minute motos during the week and stuff because you need to be rested for the weekend. So yeah, I've never had more than like two weeks of preparation for the nationals, which is definitely not ideal. Dude, you know what would be a sick YouTube video? Jeff Walker trains with Alden Baker for one week. Hey, <laughs> I'd be down <laughs> for that, dude. I don't know. He'd probably, maybe I would die, bro. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> dude, that, that could be pretty sick. Get on, get on the program with the boys, just, you know, call through, just jump in, vlog, give Alden a bit of love. Like, you know, he, <laughs> he's sort of still unknown in the industry. <laughs> I'm on a KTM now, dude. It kind of aligns, you know. I just need that Red Bull sponsorship, and I'm there, dude. You could, uh, you could get like the double-edged sword, you know. Have like the Red Bull gaming thing. You could be like the ninja of motocross, <sighs> bro. I've dreamed about it many times. Don't even get me started on Red Bull. <laughs> get, get that Red Bull fridge in the back, dude. That would be a dream come true. That's when I would be like, "Yep, we finally made it, boys. Get the Red Bull sponsorship. <laughs> we out of you." Yeah, Dude, yeah, have for you, sure. uh, we know. Have you, like, man, maybe you just need to go all general sipes too at some point, you know, like do a GNCC. Did you say you did straight rhythm? Yeah, I rode straight rhythm in 2019, I think. Yeah, when it was all the two strokes. Oh, dude, I did not know that. How was that? <clears throat> uh, it was gnarly. That was my first time on any sort of a supercross track. So it was a scary experience. I'm not going to lie. Like, dude, watching it on TV does not look that bad. And like when I got invited, I watched like the past couple of years and I was like, it's going to be no problem, dude. When I got there and looked at some of the jumps, they're literally straight up and down, bro. Like looking up them, I thought I was just going to go up and like actually move backwards in the air and just landed where <laughs> I took off from. Like until you walk a supercross track like it's you have no idea what it's like <laughs> it's insane and so talk us through that that week or that event then yeah so friday was um practice and i remember walking the track with my dad and um i was like telling him i was like dad like i don't know how i'm gonna tell these people that i can't ride this like I can't dude. I'm not, I'm going to die if I try and ride this. And, uh, he was like, yo, if you don't want to, like, it's fine. But I was like, no, like I kind of have to. And, uh, so then like my first run through it, I was terrified, bro. Like, honestly, honest to God, I thought I was not going to be able to race at all. Um, but then like, it's one of those things where the more, like the more times you do it, the easier and better it gets. And by the end of the day, I was actually like feeling okay. But Dude, it was one of the most terrifying experiences for sure. Like before I actually got on the bike and rode, like, yeah, I was pretty sure that I was either going to end up in the hospital or I was just going home because they're like, dude, it's insane. And so who did you have to like, who was in your bracket? Like, who did you end up coming up against? Like, how was it? Um, so, I mean, I got, I got knocked out like immediately because that was my first time ever on a super cross track, but it was like Max Voland, um, Jerry Robin was actually there. He was my teammate. We were under the SGB racing tent. Um, we did like the throwback, uh, KTMs. I think it was, I was David Pingree and he was Grant Langston. Like nice. back when he split his, back when Pingree split his bike in half, that's like yeah. the replica that they built mine after. So we Perfect. were immediately off to a bad start. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, 
yeah, I think Joey Crown ended up winning it. Um, but yeah, it was a crazy experience, man. I would love to do it again after getting like a season of Supercross under my belt so that I can, you know, actually try and compete a little bit. But it was still a blast, like one of the coolest experiences. Just the vibe of that place, like was super sick. I would love to go back and race that again. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty rad event, man. It sucks that obviously this year couldn't go ahead. Yeah, hopefully they do it again. And uh, especially now, like I could do a sick bike build leading up to it and stuff if I did get invited back. So that would be really cool. I hope it does take place again. Yeah, that's sick. I want to just go back to the national. So like the the 2019 season results was like versus 2020. What how big of an improvement did you make in that in that uh you know, between those two seasons. Yeah, it was actually pretty big, especially considering that I went from the 250 class in 2019 to the 450 class, which this year was way, way harder in 450. But I think out of the like eight rounds I did in 2019, I qualified for like six of them maybe. So, or no, I did nine rounds and qualified for six of them. There were three, three that I didn't make. So Um, and then when I did make them, like, I think my best finish was like a 23rd, but that was like by far my best finish. I think most of my finishes were in the thirties and like, I was pretty stoked on that because that was like the best that I had ever done up until that point. And then this year moving to the 450 class, I kind of was like expecting to have kind of some of the same results. Like, um, I wasn't expecting to just easily qualify for all of them or anything like that, but it was actually kind of an easy year, like making it in. Um, I didn't even have to race like many LCQs besides like one or two of them, um, just made it straight in off of time qualifying. And then I had that 17th place at Loretta's and a couple other like low twenties, uh, finishes. So this year was like way, way better than last year, especially like I said, given the jump from the 250 to 450 class. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can't imagine wanting to race the four fifty class either without like being able to essentially train full time. Yeah, that was kind of the reasoning as to why I did the two fifty class before. It was because like I think I'm a better four fifty rider, but dude, like trying to ride a four fifty at just your local track is gnarly. Trying to hang on to it at the end of a thirty five minute pro national is like pretty much suicide if you're not completely prepared for it so like finally i got a little bit of training time this year so i I knew i wanted to do 450 but yeah it was definitely a harder class and uh the roost hurts man tell you what you don't get a good start you've got welts all over you by the end of it (laughs) how how gnarly are pro national tracks to do on a 450 um i can't even put it into words to be honest i don't think anyone will understand unless they go out there and do it but like I mean, it's to the point where you're not even like, I'm not riding near a hundred percent as I can. I'm just trying to survive and not eat shit. Like every lap, honestly, like every single lap, there's probably four or five times when I am pretty sure I'm like going to crash hard. Um, <laughs> no way, and especially dude. when, and that's when I'm like feeling good. When you start to get tired, like halfway through, then it's literally just like you're doubling and tripling the braking bumps, just trying to not crash. So it's insane. Um, but it's also pretty sick. Like, some tracks that flow really well when it's rough, like high point is sick when it's that rough because you just get like literal, like knee deep concrete ruts that you can just rail through other tracks. Like Southwick is an absolute ass beating for sure. It's insane. (laughs) What makes Southwick harder? Is it the fact that like nothing sort of stays stable and you're just constantly having to like find a line and you've got to kind of nail it to like stay in it? 
Yeah, I think any soundtrack is just super like physically demanding and Southwick is definitely the sandiest track on the circuit, but there's like almost no point where you can just sit down and like catch your breath. You're always standing and pulling back on the handlebars because if you don't, you're just going to go right over the bars into the next bump. So, yeah, I mean, I don't I obviously there's going to be some Europeans who are calling me out about Lommel and stuff, so I don't even want to think about riding Lommel at a pro national. Um, but yeah, Southwick is gnarly. You just don't ever get a break like it. And there's no big jumps either to just kind of rest and take a break over too. like at, at Redbud, you have like the leap and pretty much every track has their version of the leap where you can just kind of like, r- r- you know, relax your grip, take a breather and get like resituated. But Southwick is just all like natural man-made. You might get like two feet off the ground in some spots, but there's no place to just actually rest. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Dude, uh, we've actually got a, an idea for a content piece uh, whenever we can like go to Europe. But I'm going to take Sam and we're going to do a 30-minute moto at Lommel. Like on the day when like everyone's at... And it's like, that's just the stipulation. It's nah. like, you cannot leave the track whether you're like... Doesn't matter if you're like sitting down and rolling around the whole thing. But there's going to be cameras on us and we are like filming an entire 30 minute moto and like so sammy grew up with jed beaton and uh so they're like real good mates jed's like a lord and we've got like a bunch of mates that are over there doing the gps right now but like i would love to just like show the world how much it would suck to be a normal human trying to do 30 minutes at lommel yeah, I think I'm busy that day, dude. Nah, I feel like you might. I feel like you might be actually. I feel like you might have just uh, volunteered yourself for that piece of content. Oh shit! No, I'm down, dude. Honestly, if I could pick one place to like live and train full time, I feel like the Netherlands or somewhere around there where there's all those gnarly, gnarly sand tracks would be so sick. Like, I love the sand as it is, and I always hear about how gnarly those tracks are, but like. It's one of those things, dude, like the super cross track I was talking about. You seriously cannot even grasp how gnarly it is until you actually just go and do it. And like the only videos you ever see are like Jeffrey Hurling's riding it. So you're like, dude, this doesn't even look that rough or whatever. But like if you just watched a regular dude ride it, nah. So, I mean, I'm down though. I'm down. I'll never back down from that. That would be sick. Dude, what about Jeff Walker MXGP one season? content Dude, sponsored by ktm my language bro you're speaking my language if there are some sponsors who want that to happen i would do that in a heartbeat i would love to go travel around meet all the people over there like ride those tracks with those riders like that would be epic yeah dude and i think like you know that's sort of some of the cool stuff that is like a potential obviously coronavirus has probably fucked a lot of the ease of that for the time being yeah. but i mean there's there's definitely I think that that's the kind of like when I think about uh, content as a person that essentially it's my full time job to think about like what content could work, man, there's like a trillion ideas that have just never been done that are very, very achievable coronavirus aside. But, you know, there's so much stuff that has not been done, man. Yeah, dude, I've always talked about that, especially because I've never done like Supercross before. This is going to be my first year actually doing Supercross, but um, like I would love nothing more than to do that. I mean, I've kind of like this is my second season doing the outdoor stuff. So people have like already seen me kind of do like all the big tracks in America. And I think it would be sick to go show off like all the sick tracks over there 
collaborate with some of those riders like that would be so sick some of my favorite videos were like the team fry designations videos from Dude, last right? year or whatever because you got to meet like um paul's jonas and jessiconas and stuff like that and you just don't get to like see that if you're over in the states you don't get to meet like those personalities and i would love to do that Dude, there's so many cool Euro guys as well. And like even the Aussie boys that are over in uh, in Europe right now as well. Like there's so many cool Aussie guys over there that are killing it. Like, And I think that that's probably one of the coolest things about the way that, you know, the internet is set up right now is that, you know, especially I think with the podcast thing, like even for Jed, like Jed did the podcast with me and Sam mid-season. Like I think he just got a podium and then I think the weekend after he won a moto, uh, like won his first moto in a while. And like he got this crazy response of people that listened to the podcast that were like, dude, like I feel bad. I'm an Aussie and I like don't really support you over in the motocross, like the MXGPs and stuff like that. But like the world is getting so much smaller now. And it's like there's a good incentive there to, you know, like if you can give anybody a platform and like get them out there. There's so much incentive now to do that because, like, there is, like, some legitimate results that can kind of come from it, you know? Yeah, dude. Like, I think, like, Glenn Koldenhoff probably gained, like, so many followers when he came over here and kicked all yeah. of our butts at Redbud and stuff. Like, dude, yeah. I, I hardly knew who the guy was before he came over to the Destinations over here. And then afterwards, like, I was watching videos of him riding for like the next three weeks, just figuring out like, how is this dude going so fast? Like, and then he started his YouTube channel and now that thing is kind of like blowing up too. So dude, I would love to get over there and kind of show off some of that stuff too. And just meet those people just for my own, like, you know, just cause I want to meet those guys and ride with them. I think that would be so sick. I would love to go over to Europe. Dude. That's another like kind of interesting point as well. Like I, um, I, uh, oh, exclusive drop Chase Sexton coming on the podcast, but, uh, like I watch, like I'll watch Chase Sexton in slow-mo on YouTube to like figure out how he rides. And it's crazy. The, I feel like the, what the internet is even doing for like the progression of riding. Like I know that it made a huge difference for me. Like I spent one night at home just watching Chase in slow-mo, just trying to, and then I had like some footage of me in slow-mo. And I'm like, what is he doing differently that I'm not doing? Just obviously speed. We can probably, that goes without saying <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. But more just like his positioning on the bike, like pausing me in a turn at the same spot on the track versus him in the turn. And so even the way that the internet has made technique become like the, it's like democratized technique. You know what I mean? Like you can kind of really pause slow down like analyze footage there's there's so much that you know is possible now and it's almost like it's just ramping up um you know i guess like the people's learning curve i don't even know how you'd kind of say it but the internet's given us so much in that sense as well yeah and it would be sick to take it even a step further and have chase watch that back and kind of just dissect like what he's doing and what he's thinking about while he's riding because like I mean, you could watch the video all day, but you're not even catching the tiny little things that he's doing. Like if he's squeezing mm. with his knees, like you're not going to see that on video, but if that's what he's doing, then he could help, you know, people learn that. And, um, I think I made a video like about, um, controlling the bike with the, your lower body. And when I was making the video, like I was pointing out some things that just seemed so like 
obvious and second nature to me, but like other people might not have even known that like pointing your toes inwards or riding on the balls of your feet was like a thing that you're supposed to do. So Mm. I would love, I mean, I'm sure I could learn even at my skill level, I could learn so much from like chase just sitting down for a second and just explaining like what he's doing as he, as he's going through a rhythm section, like that would be huge. Dude, I might actually try and sort that out during the podcast to like send him because uh, I could show him a screen that had like uh, him on there writing and like I'm sure I could get like make that happen because dude, it'd be so cool. Like my mind has just been open wide to the whole technical side of writing and I mean people are almost probably sick of me talking about it. But to me, like <laughs> that's been the thing that I've focused on so much lately as purely just a way to enjoy writing because like i kind of feel like now every time i write i have like a bit more of a purpose when i go to the track oh for sure dude yeah like i mean i'm the type of person where i need to like have goals when i go to the track it's like hard for me to just go and just ride around like for fun and i feel like a lot of people are like that yeah and like if they have chase sexton telling them hey like when you go into the corner like push push down with your outer foot to like you know drive traction through the rear wheel then they're going to start to do that and they're going to be like oh wow like that Mm. made a huge difference and then they're going to spend the whole day just you know chasing that feeling and then they're going to go look for something else to chase the next time they go to the track so yeah i think that would be sick yeah it was cool like that example you just gave so townley um we were talking about there was like we were doing one of the supercross companions and townley was like on the phone and watching it with us and there was a flat turn and i'm pretty sure it was coop coop was just like railing this thing dude like it was insane it looked like he had traction that nobody else had and i mean that's all the other best dudes in the world and uh and then townley i was like man the whole i just been riding my whole life and the whole weight the outside peg thing just like it just doesn't really it it doesn't make the big difference that everybody says it should make and then townley's like yeah well you're not really pushing down 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 you're sort of pushing like back to the axle and i'm like yeah i didn't even have to do it for that time i was like "Well, (laughs) well that's what i've been doing wrong like it made so much sense because i'm like all i feel like i'm doing is like if i push down on the outside peg that means i'm standing up so how do I push down while and sit down at the same time? And it's like that, just that tiny detail, man, just made the world of difference. Yeah, and that's like where there's that disconnect because like top pros and like fast riders just know that that's like the feeling that you're supposed to have. So like when we say like weight the outside peg, like that's not really what they mean when they say that, you know, and that's like pretty misleading for just the average person going to the track. Like if they would just take the extra five seconds to explain like, yeah, you're driving your weight through the rear wheel. So you don't get wheel spin. Then it's like immediately, like it makes perfect sense. So yeah. Yeah. I wish there was more of that in the sport. Yeah. And even like, you know, now I'll go right. And, and to me, the weight, the outside peg, concept like i'm using that nowadays as like almost like a traction control sort of thing like i'll push down on the outside peg towards the rear wheel like the way that is you're supposed to do and there'll be times where i'm going through a turn there's like one turn in particular actually at one of like my local tracks it's like a big sweeping left hand uh sort of downhill deal 
and I'm going like, I'm like lifting the pressure up and down as I'm going through the turn now because like I want a little bit less traction. So it's like you can keep the accelerator pinned and then, and when I say pinned, I know I'm fucking slow. So like, for, like <laughs> I'm talking my pinned and, but it's like, and then all I'm doing is just like lifting that weight up and down to like give myself the exact amount of traction that I want. Whereas before that would have been done with like the throttle or the clutch and then you're losing momentum and it's slower because you're getting off the throttle. So like the nuance that, you know, you can kind of add just with like a real simple concept is, uh, is actually pretty crazy. Yeah, dude. And like, especially if the corner is bumpy, like you push down when your rear end is like, you know, between bumps or like if there's a G out, like your front end almost doesn't even go in the G out. You just use your feet to like push your rear end down and then kind of lift your rear end out of it. So you like don't have to let off the gas at all. There's so many little things like that, that so many people would benefit from if people just came out and, you know, explained it a little bit more. Well, I think that there's a problem like, so a guy like Townley is really unique because he's done it all. Like he's been pretty much like at one point he was the fastest dude in the world, like with Villapoto and you know what I mean? Like he was in the top 1% of the 1%. So there's that. And then there's the fact that, you know, like if you talk to, there's, there's definitely guys like, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know who you could kind of throw, like, let's say Jet. Like Jet Lawrence right now is probably he's like probably one of the best dudes that you could possibly think of riding a dirt bike. He probably couldn't break it down with the like nuance that um, Townley can. So it's like I think that maybe some of it is the fact that there's probably only a handful of guys that could actually go that speed that could give you the like relay the information back in that relatable way because there's so many guys that they like I don't know I'm just that fast. <laughs> yeah you're probably right actually Pro like jet is just super naturally talented so he's just gonna be insane no matter what his technique is like but you'd probably have to look at the guys like ryan dungy or you know mm. people who maybe didn't have like the the most gifted natural talent but they just worked and worked and worked and like dissected everything or like james stewart even with his natural talent like i remember he used to say he built a theater in his house just so he could watch back tapes of him riding and other people riding. And he would just spend hours every day doing that. Like I would love to get inside someone's mind like that and just see all the stuff that they learned over the years. You know, like I bet it's, it's gotta be insane, but yeah, you're probably right. There's probably a lot of people who would not be any good at that <laughs> at all, but, uh, some people would be for sure. Yeah. It's funny. Like you mentioned that with James, like, our sport is pretty in the stone ages still, really. Like when you look at, if you looked at motocross and the NFL, like the NFL, to, to be a, a guy that is in the NFL, you have to just watch so much tape. So much tape. If you're a good coach of like a boxer or uh, like a mixed martial arts dude, like you're watching so much tape. The best jiu-jitsu coach in the world watches so much tape. But you just don't really hear about that. Like the only time you kind of watch tape essentially in motocross is like the truck driver goes up the top of the stadium at A1 and films the guys on a handy cam and then they watch it back, which is definitely useful. Like you can't say that it's not like that's not a good thing. Like you should definitely do that. But there's definitely not like a, all right, guys, Tuesday we're at the test track, Tuesday afternoon, we've got a, a four hour tape session. You know, it's not 
there's so many things that other sports do that motocross just completely glosses over. Yeah, I think one of the reasons is because there's so many different ways to get the same job done. You know, mm. you can look at the top 10 in the 450 class and every single one of them has such a different riding style that like, how do you tell, how do you tell Osborne that he needs to sit further forward when he just won a, you know, the national championship <laughs> sitting almost on his rear fender, you know, like, how Dude, do you do I that? How do you tell Tomac? How do you tell Tomac he needs to sit more? Yeah. Yeah, I said that to Townley. I was like, uh, so you always tell me I sit too far back, bro. What about Osborne? Yeah, it's crazy. Like, how do you tell someone they need to ride on the balls of their feet when Dungey rides on his heels and has won so many championships? Like, there's definitely, like, I don't know. There's different ways to get the same job done, which is probably another reason that, like, people don't just come right out and make videos on how to go through a corner so fast. But I think, like, for most people, like, there is one good way to get the job done maybe yeah well i think uh i think too that that there's definitely like you look at a guy like sexton to me right so his technique is almost flawless like he there's just at no point is chase sexton looks out of control uncomfortable sketchy and but he can go so fast doing that whereas you look at other guys like an osborne like he kind of looks like he's on the edge so I think that the whatever your base level default technique ability is, that lets you go X fast. And then the weird fringe shit that you do that's like your own unique style lets you go like X plus Y. And then that might equal, <laughs> you know what I mean? That equals your speed. Whereas it's like a dude like Chase is almost like, no, it's just technique. Like there's no real stepping outside the box. And maybe Wyndham was a guy like that as well. And I think that that's especially true. I think you see it more in the lights class because on the on the lights bike, you could ride with like perfect technique and the bike's going kind of like almost as fast as it can. So then it's like to get more out of that little, that little power plant, you've got to override and exaggerate the body and like milk it almost like a, you know, when you see guys on like BMX bikes and they're just like ripping the thing back and like forcing it mm. down on the ground. Like it's almost like some of that flary sort of stuff that like looks super fast, I think maybe comes from the fact that guys spend so much time on bikes that are like quite a bit slower than what they can actually go. Yeah, it's crazy. Like seeing someone... I'll use RJ Hampshire as an example because he's one of my good friends and I got to watch him ride a lot like in person. He is, I mean, he's borderline scary to watch when he's going all out because, man, there's a very small percentage of the time that both of his feet are on the pegs because he's just hammering that hard, like wide open, does not care, like sending it as hard as he can. And you're like, there's no possible way anyone could ever go faster than that and like not be in the hospital every week. And then like Porcel will come out and spin the same exact lap time and you'd swear he was in like on a sight lap, you know? It's insane to me that the just completely two different like types of riding styles and like finesse and they both get the exact same job done. They could be within a, a one thousandth of a second of each other. What do you put that down to then? Like when you have to think about that and try and figure out like what's actually going on there as a dude that could be a doctor, <laughs> like what do you think, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what does that smart person brain of yours attribute that to? 
I mean, I think a lot of it is like just the way your, your body composition is, to be honest, like how you're put together. I mean, I, sometimes I feel like I am on the ragged edge, like almost dying through a section and I watch it back and I'm like, dude, that looked completely fine in control. Like I could have gone way faster through there. And so like, I, I, I don't know whether there's like any science behind it. I think it's just just how you choose to ride a dirt bike really i don't know i think it's just how you're made yeah there, there's been a thing like i've definitely had the theory a bunch of times well not a bunch of times but like my consistent theory of that is that there's there's got to be like something going on at like the at a neural level in your brain in terms of like what feels fast because fast has to be subjective because I'd say that there's an objective feeling of wanting to hit the brakes, but there's a subjective point in time and space that each person hits the brakes. Wow, you're you're getting deep in there, brother. You're getting <laughs> philosophical on me. <laughs> I've, hey, I've but thought yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah I don't I've know if it's just bike setup or bike setup style um a lot of people just like when they're younger they do things that they think look cool on a dirt bike and then they find a way to make that efficient for themselves somehow mm. um so you know that might be part of it um but at the end of the day it's like there, there's just so many different ways to get the job done and like as long as you can make yours work i mean osborne's a perfect example i've heard some people say that he's got like the least efficient style they've ever seen but dude how can you like how can you say anything about it he wins a championship it's like in in one aspect i think it's sick that motocross is like that because like you don't have to be built a certain way or fit some certain like you know mm. guideline or whatever like you can be yourself no matter how imperfect and messed up that it is and you can still go win a championship like it doesn't matter <laughs> you can just be a gnarly dude and get it done yeah dude definitely i think that like that feeling though, like that, uh, that objective feeling that you get that makes you want to hit the brakes or like tell you that you're like, you just said, you think you were going like full pin through that section. I think that that's a, that's a very objective feeling. Like I have that exact same feeling. If I go through like any section that I ride through and you ride through, if someone was there coaching us and said like, all right, boys go through that section as fast as you can. I would guarantee that our, uh, objective experience of the feeling of being on the edge or like that scared feeling that would stop you from going faster. I'd argue that's the exact same thing. So there just has to be something different going on um, in terms of like the level of like the brain, whether it's like maybe James Stewart could just process shit like so quickly to where, you know, there's the speed that he could do something like, because you, everyone's getting to like this maximum point of like, fuck, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's the, <laughs> everyone has that. There's no one that's like, oh, I can go this fast because I don't go, fuck, I need to hit the brakes. Everybody needs to hit the brakes before a turn to feel like they make that turn. So I'd argue that that feeling's the same, but there's maybe there's something else going on that lets you um, 
that I guess makes that point hit different with each people. Like if that we had a you know like a marker at like where break people's breaking points were, like that's probably like an easy way to measure it, you know. And then obviously what I think what you're saying is that technique comes into that. Like uh, I've noticed that as my techniques gotten better, I've gotten faster because I, essentially it's like that a motorcycle is like a weight and a counterweight, or you're the counterweight and the bike's the weight, or the bike's you know vice vice versa. So there's definitely like this sinking that has to happen. And then when you get those two weights to sync up, then it becomes like quite easy to use the accelerator. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely like, I'd love to really know exactly what was going on. But I think to, to speak on what you just said is that like Zach Osborne's level of fitness and heart and determination and like all of those factors can just hit that override switch on everything that I just said. Yeah, I think a lot of it just comes down to like just where you are relative to someone else in terms of speed. Like sometimes I'll go through a section, you know, all day and I'll think that I'm as absolutely pinned and out of control as I can get through that section. And then I'll watch Tomac go through it and I'm like, okay, it's physically possible to go that fast. I'm just going to try going a little bit faster this time. And you do it and you're like, that was fine, dude. There's no reason I couldn't have been doing that the whole time. And then you're like, mm. well, I guess I'll just try and go a little bit faster. And I think a lot of people just think that they're going to crash if they go that fast. And if they just did it one time, if they just tried going that fast through the section one time, they would realize that like, you're going to be fine, dude. You can do it every lap, <laughs> but don't go out and try to go through a section wide open because I said that. All right. I don't want anyone <laughs> sliding in my DMS <laughs> with some heat on me. I, I did that man. And uh, my lap time didn't drop. I just got a compound fracture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, nah, we don't need any of that, but no, <laughs> so, that's kind of like, um, that's kind of like, like, back what we were talking about before like kind of what happened where i just randomly picked up speed as i watched my brother go through a corner and i was just like dude i mean if i crash if i tip over in a corner it's whatever dude i'm just gonna go through it that fast and just see if i can do it and then mm. i was like that was so easy like why why don't i do this every time <laughs> yeah i think that um definitely the i had a weird experience like so when i i pretty much didn't ride for the entire time i lived in america so i had I actually had a 350 that I borrowed that was Ty Simmons old like 350 race bike. And I did a couple of like, I did surf across twice and then I rode maybe like once or twice at milestone in between. So I was kind of, I'm actually kicking myself for it, but it is what it is. But like I had this huge gap off riding. Right. And like, I used to be shit, like proper shit. <laughs> and then I had 10 years off riding. And then as soon as I started riding again, I was way faster. And I'm still not super fast, but there was like this huge increase in speed on a dirt bike and what, and even jumps, like I never really wanted to jump big jumps. And now like, I'll just pretty much go and just jump the jumps. Like it's just doesn't seem like a big deal to me, but I honestly put that down to the fact that I spent 10 years filming the fastest dudes in the world. Like I was just at the Stuart compound and you just see James just jump all this shit first lap every day. He was just like, did everything super easy. And then I was at a, I was at the KTM test track and I watched Dungey hit the whoops a trillion times. I watched everybody ride and ride super fast. So I think that there was just a weird thing that happened even in that 10 years of like me or like eight years of me just like watching fast people. And then when I did go ride again, 
my whole perspective of what fast was had changed. And there was still like a limit to what I could do, but it was almost like my ceiling lifted of like being at a track and physically seeing what could be done on a bike. Yeah, dude, people say that all the time, like especially just like, you know, local riders who never went to a pro national before and they've never seen like Tomac really ride in person. They're just like, dude, I saw you go through that corner and like you just unlocked a whole new level in my brain. Like yeah. I didn't even know that that was possible. And people say it all the time. And I've I've done it, too, where like you get an injury or you just take some time off for like school mm. or whatever it is. I, I believe that every time I got home from school, even though I didn't ride at all, like I felt faster. And I don't know if it's just because I got so used to the speed when I went down to school and then like I forgot what it felt like to go that fast. And maybe that's just why I felt like I was faster once I got back on a bike. But I mean, I have no doubt that you watching those people and just studying them and like especially not just watching them, but then, you know, playing the footage back in slow mo a bazillion mm. times and just like learning everything that they're doing. Like, dude, I have no doubt that just that studying made you faster alone. Yeah, and I never, I wouldn't have thought that that was possible. And the same thing happens in jiu-jitsu. Like this year I've had, um, I had a sh big shoulder injury from crashing a bike in Vietnam. And then when I, the dude, the day I got my 350, I cartwheeled the thing and I had 0.4 hours on it <laughs> and I cartwheeled it <laughs> and, and broke my hip, which was, that was a fucking goon move. Um, but oh so God. like I had pretty much this whole year off jiu-jitsu, but I still... Like I'm a jujitsu fan and whenever I get like 10 minutes of like whenever I eat my lunch or have a coffee or like anytime I've got like random internet time, I pretty much like watch high level jujitsu matches, like world championship matches, goes for 10 minutes, bite size, I can get in, watch it, get out, watch the dudes I like that kind of do similar shit to what I try and do. And man, even like that, you come back from these massive injury layoffs and it's like my jujitsu your jiu-jitsu gets better yeah dude i one of the biggest things that was like a game changer for me in motocross was i would just watch james stewart gopro videos because he like i remember one of my uh like riding coaches a long time telling me that if you are getting on the gas before the exact middle of a corner it's because you didn't come into it fast enough and he would tell me like go watch james stewart helmet cams and he was like, I guarantee you, James Stewart is never on the gas before the halfway point through a corner. And I'm like, you're full of shit, dude. There's no way. And I would go and watch his videos. And I was like, wow, dude, he's like, he's like hardly on the gas at all because he's just carrying so much momentum and coming into the corner so fast that like, it's almost like he's not even getting on the gas at all through the corner, but he's going Mach 10. And like, dude, you can learn a lot just from studying and just watching videos and stuff. It's crazy. Man, you know, one of my craziest experiences of uh, like watching somebody ride that just completely blew my mind was there was one day and like I'd watched Dunge ride a trillion times. Like every single day I went to KTM test track, Dunge was there riding, right? And I'd watched him do so many laps around there, but there was always other bikes on the track. And so there was one day where Dunge, I don't, I can't remember whether... It might have been that they actually wanted Dunge to only be on the track and like no one else was allowed to ride for like a, a 20 lapper or something like that. And so I just got to watch Dunge ride by himself, no noise, nothing. And then I could not believe how little sound his bike made. 
I was just yeah, like, it's crazy, man. Dude, it was almost like he did this 20 lapper in silence and you could see that he wasn't using the brakes at all. And it was just this intense amount of roll speed and everything that he did was just like roll, bop, bop, roll, like everywhere that he went. And I had never like in, yeah, watching him ride so many laps and I just had never ever picked up on just how quiet his bike was completely changed my whole view on corner speed yeah people always think that if you're not wide open you're not going fast but like some of the best guys i mean ken roxon dude the amount of speed that he carries coming in and through the corners like he's the same way i would watch gopro videos of him just studying and studying because i'm like how are you going so fast but you are like never more than just a quarter throttle and it's just roll roll through speed like it's crazy. He's never on the rev limiter, always a gear taller than everyone else. Dungey, Stewart, they're all the same way. It's insane to watch. Do you um do you have like a riding coach now that you use or is everything like you're sort of teaching yourself? Yeah, um, it's all just me. I trained a little bit with a guy called Brad Jerominski from Club 57. Um, the final year that I was in high school, I was kind of like going to give it one little push um, before I went to college. And so I trained with him a little bit and uh tore my acl right before the season started so i learned a lot from him though um he was like i still carry like some of the lessons that he gave me from way back then so like i'm still even though that was like six years ago or whatever i'm still using like the lessons he gave me but yeah it's all just kind of been like just me teaching myself how to do it yeah that's crazy dude well uh we're almost hit three hours so we better just talk a little bit about supercross um so what so so you're going and you're going to do west coast lights next year um so yeah what's your uh what's your headspace coming into that Uh, yeah exclusive info here i haven't even said it yet in a a video or anything but uh i'm i'm nervous for sure just because my only experience on a super cross track really was straight rhythm and it was insane but i'm also really really excited because i feel like um my style and everything is like really suited for supercross um just kind of like smooth and like calculated and i feel like my racecraft is really good like quick decision making and everything's really good which i think is what you need for supercross so and it seems like the people who kind of have like my same type of style like Wyndham or Sealy or people like that are always really good at supercross so it's something i've always always wanted to do always felt like i would be like pretty good at it but obviously being in college every winter like kind of you know made that not possible for me so i'm really excited um i'm gonna be heading out to la like just in a couple days here to live with jerry robin so i'm glad i can have someone who's already like pretty established that i'm gonna be living with um that i'll be going to the track with every day and he can kind of watch over me and make sure i'm not gonna weed it every single time i go through a whoop section or whatever um and then just yeah you can't be being in la you know if i want to make a suspension change or whatever race tech is 10 minutes down the road they'll be able to do it for me and uh yeah just the people that are out there that i can learn from too um like i said it would be sick to like meet up with Celia at a track sometime and have him like help me go through some whoops or just figure some stuff out um there's no shortage of like cool opportunities out there so and supercross is definitely where like the media and everything is as well so um, definitely all the like YouTube subscribers and stuff have been begging for me to do Supercross for so long. So like this is finally like my chance to do it. So yep, 250 West Supercross in the books will be happening. Pretty excited about it. 
Dude, I'm excited about that. I can't wait to watch the like watch the journey of you know you like actually trying to be prepared for that. And is this like would this pretty much be like the first chance you get to kind of live like a pro motocross rider? Uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I graduated last fall and then I just, I lived at home, you know, all summer and everything doing the pro nationals. So I didn't, I was in Michigan. Like I just had, you know, little practice tracks near me and stuff. I never really like went somewhere and like had really fast people to ride with all the time. So like the fact that I'm going to have pros like all around me and just the whole industry around me and then, you know, racing in stadiums, like under the lights and everything, yeah, it's going to be quite an experience. I wish I could film more of it. Um, they kind of like, you know, they say like no to filming inside Supercross arenas and stuff. Like definitely no GoPro footage and stuff like that. But I'm still going to take everyone along as best as I can for the ride and kind of give them a feel of like what it's like, I guess. Um, dude, I feel like fuck. we need to try and talk to like Dave Prater and try and get some kind of access uh because man like your videos that you put out on supercross would do better on youtube than what theirs would i reckon so like i don't know that <laughs> i mean that there needs to be some like at some point i think they've got to allow people to like come at this with their own you know what i mean like use their own platforms if they have like if riders have their own platform yeah i mean that would be sick and like like you said, I mean, it would only benefit them. I mean, I get that they want to like own all the rights to the TV stuff and everything. Um, but I feel like, I mean, no one's gonna not watch the broadcast just because I'm posting a video a couple days after the race, you know, like it's only going to help drive people to the broadcast. So I think it would be beneficial for them to like, let me do some stuff like that. And if like, if I knew the right people, I would love to reach out to them and just kind of see what they, what they thought about it. But like I keep saying, I just, I just don't know the right people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I could probably help get, get some of those emails happening. Um, but they let like, sick. they let Jason Anderson and team fraud put out videos from Supercross. Like I don't see the difference apart from he's a factory rider and you're a privateer. Yeah, that's true. Um, dude, it would be sick to like up the content like that. I've always wanted to like have someone professional do the filming and everything. I mean, Bridget does an awesome job, but like it would be sick to have someone on the floor, you know, getting some really good footage with like a high quality camera and stuff and make it like really sick. But um, <clears throat> if we can make that happen, dude, Supercross would be insane this year. Yeah, I mean, dude, like just the, the I just don't think there's anybody that's in the position to like give people the insight that you could in that like the insight that tom gives with team fried and the access that you've got with with ando and dino like those boys do some amazing shit but it's like a completely different perspective um on racing than what you're going to be able to give like you're you're not in the 450a practice you're not going to be getting uh, podiums in the 450 class like you're going to be a privateer in the lights class and you know there's such a a unique perspective that you know the thing is is like you could give that um you know you could say like oh yeah we, we got this privateer that films or whatever and you know he posts his videos to youtube but they just don't have the following so like you're bringing this unique following um as well as i guess like the unique angle in terms of like your position in the pack yeah, I mean, I like to think that I would be bringing something new for them. 
but like I would just have to get in contact and just see if that's something that they would allow happen because man like getting a GoPro footage from like qualifying practice and stuff and just showing people what it's really like it would be insane man I would love to do that and I'm like kind of bummed that I won't be able to like truly share that with people but I mean if that was possible man it would be a crazy crazy season yeah but even just beyond that like at the practice track and everything will still be really cool to film and like well i think a lot of people are more invested in like the vlog anyway so even if i'm just in the pits talking about what's going on i think it'll still be cool but to get some riding footage on top of that i think would be the icing on the cake yeah and do you think like is it something where you think that you could um actually have someone coming to (laughs) film as well yeah, I've actually talked to another YouTuber, um, Steven Nimberg. He's a motocross guy from the States who does a really, really good job. He's uh, taken some like filmography classes and stuff like that. And uh, his vlogs are really, really well done, really put together nicely. And uh, he does a really good job of like catching the the moments between races and stuff too. Just like, you know, the interactions between people. He has a really good eye for that. So I've been talking to him and... Um, you Where's know, if everything based? goes well with the Supercross stuff, uh, the Carolinas. Oh yeah, <clears throat> yeah. But so he does like he's gone to club a few times and uh, he rides it like south of the border and stuff. But but yeah, he he doesn't do pro racing. He just um, rides for fun. But yeah, but yeah, I've been talking to him. And if if the Supercross thing goes off well, I definitely want to like have him come and do the filming and help with editing and stuff too, just to make it a little bit easier, especially with the like triple crowns that we're going to be having where we only have like two days between races, like just being able to pass the footage onto someone else to like deal with that between the races would be huge for me. So I think we're going to work together on that. Yeah. Sick dude. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I think, I'm excited to watch the, the supercross season. It's going to be cool. Like it'll be, it'll be such like a challenge for you too, you know, like to go and do something completely new, like living in a new state, there's going to be a lot of opportunity out there as well for like, you know, just everything outside of that. Like, even if you didn't race supercross and you just went to California with like your YouTube channel and riding in mind, like, I think it's just insane what you could create, even if you took racing completely out of the picture. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like 90% going to happen supercross, um but like there's always still the fact that or the chance that I'll get on a supercross track and it'll just be like way too little time to get prepared and everything in which case I would probably just get like a CR500 and go ride in the hills with some <laughs> cool dudes, but, but like supercross is definitely the main focus. Yeah, for sure, but uh supercross is definitely the main focus and like like you said, man, it just it's going to add so much more to the sport. Like not that it was getting stale or anything, but just kind of doing the same outdoors for the past like 20 years of my life. Like I'm definitely ready to kind of like try something new and just freshen it up again. Hopefully not crash too hard too many times. But uh, yeah, I'm excited about it, man. I've always wanted to. Nah, that's so sick, dude. Well, um, hey, man, that's three hours. I reckon we'll uh, I reckon we should reconvene uh, at some point maybe like after a couple supercross races or yeah we'll uh we'll do something because uh yeah like i love what you do i love getting to talk to you about content there's not that many people that i can talk to like i look i definitely look up to you in terms of like what you've achieved uh from a, a media perspective i think you're very very undervalued in the sport uh i like that you uh, don't cry about that because <laughs> I just think that it's, <laughs> it's naturally going to come. Um, 
But yeah, man, like thanks so much for spending three hours. I know it's getting late over there and uh, I'm definitely excited for what you've got coming in the future. And like I said, anything that I can do to help out from my end, I will be all about it, dude, because I think that, yeah, huge asset to the sport and um, the fact that you're like creating an example of what is possible um, for the average privateer who's a nice, well-spoken, cool dude. Um, I think you're really showing what's possible if you put in the work. Well, thanks, man. I mean, like, thank you, first of all, for having me on, but also just, like, just saying all the nice things about me that you do, like, whether I'm around or not, you know? I'm, like, you just say such good things all the time, and I, I've, like, I'm so stoked about that because I've, I'm trying to do something really good here, and like, it's cool to hear from someone that, I mean, I've also looked up to you, you know, so it's cool to hear you say those things about it and kind of like, you think that there is value here. That means a lot to me because like, there's not a lot of people that I can talk to about it either, you know? So it's cool to finally get to sit down and talk to you about it. And uh, yeah, next time, maybe we can hopefully do this in person if COVID is not a thing anymore. But uh, I'd love to come over, do some stuff with you, man. Maybe we'll do the uh, the race that you had in mind before <laughs> last time we talked. But yeah, man, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me on. And we'll definitely do it again, man. Definitely. Yeah, that, that Manji map, I think it's in like June next year. So it'll be after Supercross. Perfect. Right in between the Nationals. So I reckon I could definitely... Let's do it, man. I'm down. I got the, got the KTM hookup, so we could definitely make the KTM thing happen. Um, but yeah, dude, I think that that's like... That's uh, definitely, you know, once even the racing stuff's done, like there's so many races all over the world that like just no one does in terms of like media wise, you know? So I think that, um, and, and uh, it's definitely a case too of like a rising tide floats all boats. Like the more, like there's definitely no, at no point am I like discouraging of anyone doing a motocross podcast or event. Like I want this shit to, I want everyone to, do well out of this because if you know like i always talk about the mma thing like there is a million mma podcasts they're all doing well they're all killing it like the more content that we create the more that we spread this like good vibe of motocross and the more that we like try and like i guess bring people in like hey there's a place for you like i don't care if you oh you don't have a bike you haven't rode in 25 years i don't give a fuck come and hang and i think that that's like the that's the attitude that we need to have towards like not only the fans of the sport, but even like you said, you know, like just more people creating Jerry Robbins, start your fucking YouTube, bro. Like show me how sick it is <laughs> to be, to be you. And it's like, dude, even guys like Gage Shear, like that dude is so sick. Like he could have the coolest YouTube channel as well. You know, like the stuff that team fried's doing the stuff like danger boy. There's, there's so many people doing stuff. There's so much room for everybody to, to have a crack and to put it out and like yeah the more that we all help each other the quicker i think uh we'll grow the pie that everybody can kind of eat from you know yeah dude i mean you said literally everything that encompasses everything that i feel man we need to get more people making content bring more people into the sport it's it's good for everyone involved man we just yeah jerry come on dude upload some videos brother <laughs> but yeah dude i'm looking forward i mean 
if people start doing it, I can't even imagine what the future is going to look like for motocross, but there's plenty of, you know, examples from other sports where media is starting to take over and it's only good things. So hopefully that happens. If not, I'm still going to make content anyways. And I know you will too. So we'll just make sick content, just you and me, whatever. (laughs) But yeah, dude, thank you so much for, for having me on and yeah, definitely an Austria, Australia trip in the near future. That would be sick. And, uh, yeah, dude, I'm, I'm excited for the future.